And remember that we are not descended from fearful men. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Five, four, three. The Kellen and Alex Show. Zero. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. And the Kellen and Alex Show. Reba, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me today. We had a two-week break. We're back. And uh, back. first of all, happy Veterans Day. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you for your service. Appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you to all the veterans out there. Shout out. So what what branch did you serve in? So I was in the Air Force for 13 years. Wow. 13 13. years. Yes. Because we had um, Steve last time. He was for four. He did his four, got out 13 years. Yes. That's a long time. Yeah. So if you include ROTC, which I did in college, that's an additional four years because that's how I did my officer training before I commissioned into the Air Force. So I was like transitioning into the Air Force while having college life experiences. So that was really fun. So really, it's been like a journey of 17 years, if you think about it. So they have ROTC here at Franciscan. I know they have Air Force, Navy, Army. So can you tell us a little bit about ROTC and what it actually is, is kind of like advanced preparation or. Okay. So there's three ways to become an officer in the military. So one way is doing ROTC. And so that's, you're going to college and you're taking ROTC classes, learning about the service, how to be a leader while you're taking college classes. And typically you'll wear your uniform like one day a week. And then as you get older and advanced, you, you get more leadership opportunities and more training to prepare you for becoming an officer. And then you get your job and then you go off and you commission and you serve. Okay. The other way is to go to one of the service academies. So that would be like West Point or the Air Force Academy. Academy or the Naval Academy. And so there you're like 100% in the military 24-7, wearing a uniform every day. So it's it's a lot more intense and the instruction is much more different. It's much more rigorous. You don't really get the advantage of having a college life. So I'm kind of grateful that I had that. Nice. <laughs> um, but you know, so you get really prepared for 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 duty and you're in your uniform every day. You get inspected, all these other kinds of things, rigorous physical training and all kinds of different opportunities. And then when you graduate, just like us, you commission. So whether you go through the military academies or through college, we all end up together once, huh. once we get out there into the service. So is there an advantage to go into the because the Air Force One is in Denver, is that right? Colorado Springs. Colorado yes. Springs. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is there an advantage to, like, do people, did you have um, other service people with you that went to the Colorado Springs one? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. You know, it's kind of like, I went to the academy kind okay. of thing. Oh, yeah. you, know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but once we're, I went to flight school in Pensacola and we're all in the same job doing everything together. Wow, so the whole point school. is to become an officer, you have to have a degree. And mm-hmm. so those two ways get you your degree. The third way you can become an officer is through OTS or in the Army and Navy, it's OCS. Um, I think it. I think it's OCS in the Army. It definitely is for the Navy. And so it's Officer Candidate School or Officer Training School. And so those are for people that have already gotten their degrees on their own. They've lived life a little. And they're like, you know what? I want to join the military. And I already have my degree. And I'm going to go to officer training. So they go to like a compact training of like roughly 12 weeks where they learn everything about the military and how to become an officer. Mm. And then they go off and commission. Yeah. So that's how, how you become an officer. If you, if you enlist in the military, that's when you're talking to a recruiter, you know what job you want to do. Hopefully you get what you want. You sign up, you go to basic training and then you learn everything about the military and then you go off and do your job. Nice. And then wow. hopefully you can get your degree while you're <laughs> serving. So the Air Force and the Navy and Army Marines, we have great education opportunities. So 
Yeah. 13 years. What was your uh, specialty? Or, or I'm sure you had many different assignments, but. Sure. So I was fortunate enough to have two different jobs in the Air Force. So I always wanted to fly jets. That's what I wanted to do throughout all of my ROTC time. Um, and I ended up getting picked up for strike nav. So that is, I was going to be either in the backseat of a B-1 or an F-15 right away. Oh, wow. So <laughs> oh, Nice. Yeah. So the way they did um, navigator training back then, now it's different. But so if you, if you get a pilot slot, you go straight to pilot training and then you will decide from there based on how well you, it just, it's decided there based on how well you do, which track you get, whether you mm-hmm. go for fighters or whether you go for heavies. And so it's totally different communities flying fighters. You're more concerned about pulling G's, finding targets. Everything's very fast paced. And if you fly heavies, it's a lot, I don't want to say less rigorous, but (laughs) you know, um, the job is less stressful in the minute that you're flying, Mm -hmm. but for navigators, they split us off at the beginning. So all the navigators that were going to go into heavies immediately went to Texas for training at Randolph air force base. And the rest of us that wanted to go to fighters and bombers, we went to Pensacola. So I was at a Navy base. And so the Navy trained me how to fly. Wow. And so we got a few flights in the front seat in the T6, which was great. And then the rest of my time, I'm practicing navigation and target acquisition in the back seat. Target acquisition. Wow, this is it's gotta be very technical. Like your <laughs> yes. your job there. Yeah. It is. And you know, I am not a technical person. I majored in political science and French. So. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, you're you're having to do all the course, you know, oh my gosh. where you're gonna move and all that type of stuff for a fighter jet and all this type oh of stuff. Oh my god. I can't even oh, yeah. imagine the different math and all this type of stuff you have to figure out. You know, the math wasn't so bad. We had these <laughs> we had these contraptions called whiz wheels. I remember using those in my undergraduate training. Mm. Um we kind of graduate from there, but yeah, doing point to points where you're like you have your compass and then you have your direction and the direction you want to go and you have to figure out which course is best to go. That was always like the fun part. Um, but it was a really good time and just, you know, you're just getting used to the systems and the radar and how to do your job. And we have simulators. So I practiced a lot in the Sims. So mm. they were open every day. So I was always in there practicing routes and things that I was training to do so that I could get better at it and become more second nature. Wow. Did you ever have any like emergency situations as a navigator? I was very fortunate that I did not personally experience those, but training for emergencies is such a huge part of our job. Hmm. So, I mean, half the time we're studying for how we're supposed to find our targets and where we're going to go, what routes we're going to take and, and how we're going to brief our instructors about like which things we're going to look for and how we're going to try to do things. And the other half is memorizing emergency procedures <laughs> and getting, we get tested on them during the brief. There are numbers we have to know for like, um, all different kinds of, of scenarios. And so a lot of that is being able to recite it and to enact it quickly so that in the moment that it happens, we can just act and we don't have to think about it so we can keep our heads in the game so we can deal with the emergency. You just got the procedure, you know it, and you just do it, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they go for. So I did have one instance where I was in the back. So we were in the T-39, which is a, it's the radar training jet for the Navy. And so it's not like a, like a jet where you have like a two seater and you have an ejection seat. We've got like five seats in the back. And so the students will walk up and take turns. Um, yeah. So training. So we'll just like switch mid flight. Like, Hey, now it's your turn. Right. And so we're about to take off. And then all of a sudden I was in the back. So I didn't, I didn't hear it or feel it, but we had what's called a bird strike. And so that's one of 
the things oh, yeah, on takeoff. So luckily wow. we hadn't started rotating yet. Rotating yeah. means taking off. And so we were able, because there's a certain speed where it's no matter what happens, you've got to take off. Yeah. And so we yeah. didn't hit that speed yet. Oh. Um, so we were able to stop <clears throat> and we all got out and looked at this pretty white dove that was stuck on the wing shield. Uh, <laughs> oh no. Oh, like, oh, man. Well, that would be, I'm Wait, sure. I would that, be freaked okay, out. What was that movie that they also, it was a bird strike, right? Was it? Sully? Uh, the- no, there was a movie a long time ago about, it was called The Edge with Anthony Hopkins. Uh, well, that's an old one. I don't know if you've seen that. I no, but the, the movie where the they were flying in, I think it was New Jersey or something like that. It was a, just a regular pilot. And they had, is Bird Strike where the bird goes into the, the turbine or the jet engine or something like that's that? That's one or? Bird Strike. A Bird Strike is... Oh, just strike. birds hit your thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the bird just hit the windshield yes, for yours. Got it. Yeah. Well, for theirs, they were flying. Um, it was just a commercial jet. And well, it was in the Hudson River, remember? Yeah, it was the Hudson yeah, River. The Hudson yeah, yeah. They, the that was guy a Tom had, Hanks movie. Well, yeah. What happened basically was um, the pilot, there was a bird strike and killed the engines. So what they had to do was they tried to locate to other, they tried to go to LaGuardia. They tried to go to the airports and they couldn't, like they couldn't take them. So what he had to do was in the last moment just go into the Hudson, and he went in there, professional pilot that no had one been died doing it for years. No one died. They just went in, and that, that's uh, crazy. You have these like million dollar jets and all this stuff, and a bird yeah. can just, just <laughs> mess it destroy up, destroy your yeah. engine, or hit your windshield, yeah. and you literally can't see anything. And it's just, yeah, what can you do? Exactly. I didn't see that movie, but I know exactly what you're talking about. And the great thing about that scenario is how the pilot knew his emergency procedures and Mm -hmm. he was able to go through in his mind, okay, what do I have left? I don't have this. I don't have this. This fuel is out. This fuel is out. What do we got? The Hudson. Mm -hmm. And he just said, we're going into the Hudson, right? (laughs) And he knew New York so well that he said something like, look for us between 66th and 70th or something. Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) I forgot the name of the streets, but he knew exactly what to do. He kept everyone calm and got everyone out. And that's got to be tough in a civilian situation because if it was a crew of military people, we would all be trained on how to act during an emergency. But then you you don't know what kind of people you have on board when when they're civilians. Yeah. So you got to make sure to keep everyone calm. And that takes a lot of effort. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I just can't <laughs> like imagine. Being on the intercom, like, we may die. I'm going to the Hudson. You know what I mean? Uh, we got hit by a bird strike, ladies and gentlemen. Added. We're just going to go into the Hudson. Um, <laughs> That would be, yeah, that would be really, really freaky, I'm sure. When you were going into the Air Force, mm-hmm. were there like any kind of insecurities that you had or some actual like real nervousness about anything like going in? Like, so yes and no. What's interesting is now that I'm in my 30s, looking back, I think, wow, I should have been way more scared about things <laughs> when I was younger. But it's like, you know, when you're 18, you're just like, I want this. I'm going to go. Let's just go do this. And you don't think about consequences. You know, you're like, I have this dream. I want to go do it. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you look back and you're like, hmm, I should have thought about things, you know, certain decisions <laughs> and whatnot. But, you know, that kind of mindset is what helps us grow and take risks as young people. So, you know, that's a great thing. Um, but so, you know, I could say that I was a little nervous just because I was, I knew I was not a technical type person. So I was like, well, am I going to be able to do the math and figure out, you know, this kind of spatial reasoning that we do when we fly? Because I like English. I like social studies, you know, I'm like political science, but you know, when you really love something and you work really hard, um, you know, anyone can, anyone can fly, anyone can do these things. You give me so much confidence because I was, <laughs> I was a calm arts major here yeah. and I was the least technical person in the entire department. 
Wow. My skills was a you lot more. You still are very good. And I, I am very, I'm not, I'm not very good with technology. Before this, you were like, I think my mic's messed up. And I literally just moved it a little bit closer <laughs> to you. It was totally fine. Um, I was, yeah, I wasn't technical at all. My skill lied a lot more in kind of behind the scenes, like on camera and just doing all sorts of different things. So that's a big inspiration for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah Sometimes I worry too about, man, if I go into this job field, I'm not techie at all. Mm -hmm. Am I going to be able to do this? And obviously hard work, you can do anything with hard work, but you know, I think it's natural to have those kind of doubts sometimes, especially when you're uh, starting in your career. I mean, I'm, I'm 23. I just got out of college. So I'm doing the Kellen Alex show. Thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, But yeah, so uh, inspiration. How many years have you uh, been out of the military now? So I medically retired in May of 2019. Oh, wow. Really recent. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And came straight here to Franciscan. So it's really like my my spiritual life with the Lord and my military life have just been so intertwined in so many awesome ways that mm. didn't even make really make sense until this year. Um, because if we go back to college, that's when I started going to mass because I grew up Protestant. And so um, it was just kind of a new thing for me. And I just felt really called to go to mass and see what it was all about. Um, I think the inspiration for that started actually in high school um, when I was in French class and um, I had to do a report on Joan of Arc. And so I could say that she was one of my inspirations. We had to choose a historical French figure. And I'm like, female soldier. Yes. So I'm going (laughs) to do that. And, you know, just her story, it really, really moved me. And I'm like, what is this draw to mass that she had that was so strong for her? Um, So I started going to mass in college. And, you know, why? like God just puts all the people in your life at the right time, you know, and you don't even realize that at the moment. But so I lived with 50 girls in a scholarship hall and about a third of them were Catholic. Wow. And so they were like, hey, come to mass with us. And I'm like, I'm here. I'm in this right community, you know. And um, so they took me to mass. And let me tell you, my first mass, I mean, I had never been to one before. You know, Mm. I'm used to a Protestant service where you go in, we sing, we sit down. There's preaching for maybe 30, 40 minutes, maybe an hour. Sing some more. Sing again, right? (laughs) You say a prayer and you go, right? So I bring my Bible in. I'm like, ah, why isn't anyone else bringing their Bibles? You know? (laughs) (laughs) Come on. People, these Catholics. (laughs) I'm like, is it true they don't read it? Like, no, we have Bibles here. And I'm like, okay. And then my friends were like, okay, he's going to read. He's going to read the Bible during mass. I'm like, oh, okay. So I have my Bible ready, you know, and they just start like a reading from blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, but what's the chapter in verse? And I'm trying to open my Bible. And I'm like, where are where they? Where is it? Where is it? Because, you know, we're used to having like the mm. verse and, and the chapter. So we know where to look. And so it took me a while to figure out that it was, you know, in the missal there. And it's, you know, laid out for every stuff. day. Yes. Yeah. I had no idea. I didn't know any of that mm. stuff. So I'm like, what? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, screw. And the, they're on the second reading. What? <laughs> like going through my, my Bible again, like trying to figure out where they are. Then all of a sudden I found it and he was done. I'm like, what is happening here? <laughs> like, how does everyone just know <laughs> where they are? So yeah. So that was like my first experience. Then they got to the Eucharist part of it. Oh, they did. Yes. So, and I think the Eucharist is what really drew me. 
because as a child, I loved going to communion. So we had it maybe about once a month, roughly, in most mm-hmm. Protestant circles. You kind of do it as like a remembrance. And I just always remember being so excited. And it wasn't just because I got to eat in church. It was because <laughs> like I knew there was something special about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and just so seeing like in the Catholic Church how it's done at every Mass and you can have it daily and how much respect and love there is for it and just the entire liturgy around the Eucharist, how much time is spent on it. It's very, it was very mesmerizing to me during my first Mass. You know, Alex and I, we've talked about a lot of how can we even make the church more accessible to the people? And one thing that we've been kind of contemplating is kind of, you know, the sacraments, especially kind of confession, how can we have confession more available to people? Because, you know, a lot of parishes, I mean, it's interesting around here because there's a lot of Catholic churches like in Steubenville and in Weirton. So confession is pretty available, but in a lot of places, like there's just have confession once a week. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people want to go to confession more than that. So how do you think that we can make the sacraments more available to people? Because I think to some extent it is, it is hard uh, currently in the United States, like the current state of it is maybe not the best. I think we could do more to give the sacraments to people. How do you think that we can do something like that to make things more accessible? Like to other Catholics or to like yeah. all Christians? Uh, Well, I guess both, but kind of just for Catholics right now, like the like the sacraments, how can we make that more accessible to them? Wow, I think maybe setting the example ourselves, you know, by starting off like talking about how much we love going to mass and how much yeah. we love going to confession. Yeah. yeah, and I think those girls who invited you, that that's a huge part is like, hey, we have mass. It's here, it's closed. Come with me. You know what I mean? It's yeah, that availability exactly. and um Yeah. And Catholics like loving the sacraments, I think Mm -hmm. would be a huge thing because then the pastors are like, okay, I'm going to have more confessions. Like everyone's asking me for them. Exactly. We create the demand for it. Create the demand. Mm -hmm. And then we get the supply. And uh, yeah, yeah, good on those uh, Catholic girls for telling you like, hey, come to mass. Just at least come and just see what's going on. You know? Yes. And so many, you know, converts I've talked to have have always been like that their first mass experience was just such a jarring experience for them because it's completely different than you know, uh, everything else that they've been to. And um, a lot of that is just because, a, you know, a Catholic friend was just like, hey, I go to mass. I think it's really important. Come with me. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Being bold enough to just do that and, you know, be comfortable with the mass. Uh, so you converted in. So, okay. Back to university. So you were in university, went, yes. went to that first mass. Yes. Where did it proceed from there? Well, so I just, you know, I kind of, you know, was experimenting. So I was like going to mass and then I was also going to a Protestant church, okay. you know, because it was what I was used to. So mm-hmm. I went to like a Protestant youth group and I still did stuff with the Catholic church, but luckily they offered classes, like free classes to learn about the faith. And nice. so I spent a lot of time with, you know, my teacher asking all the questions that, you know, we all have as Protestants. And he really spoke my language by bringing it all back to the Bible, which is what I needed as a Protestant. Mm-hmm. It's what we all need really mm-hmm. as Catholics to see where all our traditions originate from because they're all scripturally based. But a lot of people, like Catholics, don't know how to explain it and Protestants don't think that it exists. So there's a gap there, you know, in not understanding our own scriptures. And so when he's explaining to me um, John chapter six, 
and the bread of life discourse and what Jesus was really saying when he said, this is my body, take it and eat it. You have to eat my body mm. and drink my blood. And, you know, we never really talk about that passage growing up at all, <laughs> or it's seen as like yeah. kind of like a symbolic thing. <clears throat> yeah. But, you know, if you keep reading, it doesn't make sense why people would walk away. Mm-hmm. You know, he loses disciples there. You know, they walk away from him. And that's when Peter, he asks Peter, you know, are you going to leave me too? And mm-hmm. out of faith, he's like, we have nowhere else to go. We're here. <laughs> yeah. you, don't, you don't fully understand it, but we're going with it. If that's what you say, yeah. you know, wow. you know, and it's like, oh, this makes, this makes so much more sense now. So it's like these light bulbs were clicking, <laughs> you know? And then when he explained how the ceremony of mass, what we do is the same exact order of worship that the disciples in the early church did. I'm like, oh, take me back. <laughs> like, oh my <laughs> goodness, this is what this seems we used familiar. to do. Exactly. <clears throat> From the beginning, like, why did we change this? And so, you know, being a history person and just wanting to get back to my roots of the faith, you know, I really, I really love that. So I was doing RTC and going to mass, you know, like I, I like to say that like my rebellious years of college were going to mass. Like that's what I did <laughs> nice. to rebel, you know, there you go. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to try something new. Right. Um, but so then I thought about becoming a chaplain in the air force. Oh, really? Wow. wow a chaplain. Okay. Right. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, like, is this what you want me to do, Lord? You know, I always like, I'm going to fly. I want to fly. But now it's like, well, I also want to serve, you know, God and bring God to people. I started Bible studies and ROTC, just like nice. my own, like, cause I'm a still Protestant. So I'm like, Hey, I just want to talk about this. Let's go talk about it. You know, we need to do more of that as Catholics. We too, do. Right. Seriously, yeah. yeah. yeah um, I agree. So I was like, you know, is this what you want for me? And so I talked to my, um, my commandant of cadets. And he said that, okay, the way to become a chaplain is that you'd have to like be ordained in your own denomination. And then you'd have to enter in like that, or you would have to just join in on any job and then become a chaplain later. Hmm. But so it's basically you're under the authority of your denomination. And so since I wanted, I was like, seriously considering becoming Catholic, I knew, I learned that I wouldn't be able to become a chaplain because I'd have to be mm. a priest and I'm female. I'm like, mm. okay, so that's out. But I, I hadn't decided to become Catholic yet because mm. I was very weary about and hesitant about doing RCIA because I'm like, I'm already a Christian. Why do I need to, <laughs> why do I need to be confirmed? I was already <laughs> baptized. I was confirmed. I don't understand. I just want to go to mass, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so I thought about it and I prayed about it for a while. And, you know, one of my good friends, Steve, who's still in the air force right now, um, you know, he gave me some very wise advice. As shout a, out to Steve. Yes. Shout, shout out to Steve. Steve. <laughs> <laughs> so he was like, you know what, Reba, you know, in the pilot world, there aren't that many you know, really strong Christians and you would be a really good example in that world. So I think you should go do that. Wow. Wow. And he became a pilot too, and he's a strong Christian as well. Um, And so I thought, okay, you know, maybe this is where I'm meant to make a difference. So I pursued aviation from there. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And did you convert later on in the Air Force? Okay. And also conversion, I try to stay away from that word, when it's a Protestant becoming a Catholic. Oh, right. Just be- Come into the fullness of the church. Yes, right. exactly. Yes, because, and I think that also helps um, kind of bring us together. Mm-hmm. Because when we say we convert, if we're Protestants, and it's like we're actually changing our religion yeah, to yeah. something else. Hmm. So, like, my dad's from Pakistan. So, as Muslims, they became Christian. And so, that 
is more of a That's conversion. That's definitely a conversion. Right? <laughs> yes. and, and the only wow. reason I think about it is because I told my dad, I'm becoming a convert. I'm going to Catholicism, right? And when I had made the decision and he said to me on the phone, it's the same Christ, right? And I'm like, well, yeah. And he's like, well, you're not really converting. And I'm like, that's true. So yeah. So yeah. So I think of it as, yeah, like you said, coming into the fullness of the church. Mm-hmm. Cause I feel like I didn't take anything away. I didn't change. I'm adding yeah, like yeah. more <clears throat> to it. You and had God, the father in Christ. And now you get mother church. You yes. Get the, yeah. the full package now. Exactly. The full family. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> which is really awesome. Nope. Um, Oh, sorry, what? No, go ahead. So the way that it happened was because of my Air Force career. So I came to Pensacola, Florida um, to learn how to be a backseater, um, either on and B1 or F-15. Wasn't sure yet. Didn't know what's going to happen until I went through school. Um, and I went to mass with my roommate who I got a house with, who was also Catholic. So there you go. Again, the Holy Spirit. My go. roommate was Catholic. So And our church was 0.8 miles away. So I'm like, oh, this is perfect, <laughs> right? Nice. And it was Good. called Church of the Holy Spirit. In Pensacola, Florida. <laughs> Everything's adding right? up here. Shout out yep. to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> <laughs> so we're there. It's like August, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we found hot out. Hot in Florida. Oh, definitely. Oh, humid, yeah. humid hot. sweaty. <laughs> totally, but lots of awesome thunderstorms. Love those afternoons. Really? Huh. Yeah. Florida has those. Yeah, yeah they have thunderstorms. The summer, yeah. They have the weirdest weather, yeah. They do. <laughs> yes. Um, but so we had recently found out that our flight training was going to be backed up for about nine months. So until you start training, you're in what's called casual status. And so you'll do jobs around the base, whatever is needed pretty much until the pipeline is ready for you because they've got so many people to get there. So we knew it was going to be a wait. And so we're sitting in church one day and they announced that RCIA was going to start. And her name's Summer. So shout out to Summer. Shout out. Shout out, Summer. (laughs) So she looks over at me and she's like, you know, you might as well just do RCIA now since we don't have to start flight school yet. And I'm like, okay. Providential, man. Exactly. <laughs> nine months pushed off and you're like, I have nine months for RCA now. Exactly. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So then I got confirmed like right as my training was starting and getting super busy. I would not have had time to go yeah. to Wednesday night classes for RCIA. Mm-hmm. And so it just kind of all worked out. And then my Catholic journey began. Yeah. Praise God. Yeah. Praise God. <laughs> so your parents are from Pakistan? My dad is. Your dad is. Yes. Where's your mom from? So she's from New Jersey. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Great. Yeah. So she was raised Presbyterian and her father, my grandfather, who died before I was born, he was a Presbyterian pastor. And my grandfather in Pakistan was a Presbyterian pastor. No way. Yes. Yes. But so the way that he became Christian, I know I've told you this story before, but so my great grandfather, um, he was a Muslim and he was sick. And one day the only hospital available was a Christian missionary hospital. And that's where he went. Um, And while he was there, Jesus came to him in a dream. And he woke up and was asking his doctors and nurses who were all missionaries, you know, who is Jesus? And what is this? And he became a Christian right there. And the name of the hospital was called the Good Samaritan Hospital. (laughs) And my last name is Good. And that's how I got my name because he changed it. Oh, my gosh. I got the chills. I got the chills. (laughs) I have the chills. The Good Samaritan. That's crazy. Wow. Wow. Appeared to him in a dream. Yes. And you know, I have heard of more accounts like that in that part of the world. It just really shows how the Holy Spirit is working, you know, in places of wilderness or isolation where missionaries have not been able to reach. Like the Holy Spirit does reach out and teach people um, about Christ. It's like in those, um, you know, kind of an area, especially the Middle East, kind of dominated by Islam. Mm -hmm. You know, there's 
the Holy Spirit really comes into those places that need it the most. And Alex and I, we've been to um, the Middle East. We've been to Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and all those places where Jesus lived. I'm so envious. Oh, wow. (laughs) It was unbelievable. We did the Via Dolorosa. um, And it was, you feel such a presence because it was really interesting. You know, growing up, um, growing up Catholic, we learn about Jesus and everything and and, all of his teachings and, and the Catholic Church. But it's almost like a completely different experience when you're actually there. Wow. When you see his tomb, when you see the place where his cross mm. was, your life has changed forever. And I remember there was a sign um, that said, uh, you know, what was it? You come here as a pilgrim, but you leave as like a, almost like a missionary, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's just, it's it's amazing that, the Holy Spirit works in so many ways. Yeah. And especially in the parts of the world that need it most. Exactly. In the Middle East, yeah. Middle East. Like, especially since there's been so much turmoil over there. I mean, it was like, you know, Saudi Arabia, Iran, um, <clears throat> all those places were like next to be converted, Christianity, and and then we have Islam spreading. And <clears throat> But um, yeah, maybe this is a new time, especially because a lot of those areas are getting more secularized. Some are getting more secularized. Others are, um, you know, becoming more uh, hardline on their their Islam. But I think there's a growing number, especially in the modern <clears throat> modern age, where the West as well is losing, mm-hmm. has lost the faith. Really, that um, yeah, maybe maybe that's an opportunity in the Middle East for uh, conversions and um, yeah, preaching of the gospel. That's an amazing story. And okay, so how did it? Your great grandfather, when he okay, so he was he the one that became the yes. Presbyterian. Wow. Okay. Oh, he became yeah, he became Christian. He became sure. a Christian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, his son became Presbyterian minister. Yes. Correct. Okay. Uh, is how did that impact him socially at the time? See, these are questions I would have loved to ask my grandfather, who yeah. passed away two years ago. Mm-hmm. But what I can say, so what's this is amazing. So after my great grandfather converted. Um, he was disowned and disinherited by his family for converting to Christianity. And so Mm -hmm. he moved with my grandfather and his two sisters. So my, my, my granddad's, my grandfather's sisters, all his children into a Christian missionary compound. And that's where they lived. Wow. And a month later he died. Wow. Yes. And so this is, this is the stories that I've been told. I'm not sure if it's exactly a month, but roughly a month later, soon after moving down there, they di- he died. And so my grandfather and his sisters were raised as orphans in this Christian missionary compound. And I've, of course, I didn't think about this until after he died, but I wanted to ask him, like, your father had the conversion and the dream, but you didn't. How is it that after he died, you didn't want to go back to your family, right? Because you had just left and you're moving, you're mm-hmm. being thrown out, and now you're living with strangers, and now your father's dead, and now you're here with these strangers. <laughs> and, wow. you know, but somehow he and his sisters had that conversion, and I never really got to ask about it, but they were strong Christians all the way to the end. And my grandfather grew up and became a Presbyterian minister and started two churches there in Pakistan, oh different areas. Wow. Yeah. Disowned by your entire family. Mm-hmm. And he dies a month later. How old would he have been when he died then? Was he fairly young? <gasps> Maybe like 30s or 40s. Oh, I'm wow. not exactly <clears throat> sure. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, but that illness that he had, you know, mm-hmm. that's what brought him to the hospital Got where it. he yeah. had his conversion, you know, from what I understand. And then, you know, I think maybe it was that illness that took his life or something. I'm not sure, you know, but just enough time to change our family's course. What a miracle. What a miracle. There's nothing Jesus loves more than last minute conversions. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, mean it's, it's just, uh, well, blows your mind. I mean, you know, it, and it's, uh, it's such a beautiful it's such a beautiful thing just all around is coming to Christ, you know, and, uh, that's actually a difficult place like that. Getting yeah, disowned by your and, family socially. Yeah. I mean, just automatically it's just, I mean, cause it's a, it's Muslim state. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, socially you just went from citizen to like second class, you know, you're a Christian, you're exactly helping these missionaries and whatever else. And, um, yeah. And, Founding two churches too. And eventually did did he immigrate? He did. So he retired around 2005 and came permanently to the U.S. And it was so nice to have him here, you know, with us because growing up, we'd have maybe one visit with him every three or four years Hmm. for like a month at a time. And we never had Christmas with him because he said, no, I have to be with my congregation during the important holidays, Mm -hmm. you know, so we never got to really see him. But my grandmother, she would come back and forth more often to help take care of us when we were growing up. So we got to see a lot more of her. Um, But when my grandpa came back permanently, you know, it was so great to have him here. And it's like, he finally gets to be with his family and his kids. But, you know, there's always still a part of him that felt, you know, that he still wanted to preach. He was never done. Like he was preaching even on his deathbed. Like I was with him and he was still telling me stories and I was reading Psalms to him and you know, he was even trying to talk to the nurses. Do you know Jesus Christ? It was just so amazing. Oh, what a blessing. He's like, he, he it's not like he retired from preaching. He was always a preacher, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. Always wanting to share the gospel. Wow. Have you visited um, Pakistan no. since or anywhere in the Middle East? Or? I haven't actually been to the Middle East or Pakistan. And so I really want to go one day and see my homeland. You know, I still have distant relatives there. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe one day, hopefully, like with my dad, we can go back together. So yeah, I have not been to that area at all. I've been lots of other places. Yeah. Where were your deployments? <laughs> So I didn't officially deploy. Okay. So while throughout my flying journey, I did end up getting F-15s, which was great. Oh, wow. And so I was in training for that for about nine months. Mm -hmm. And toward the end of my training, I had five flights left and I had orders to go fly operationally out of England, which was my dream job. And I started having these weird ear problems that no one could figure out for literally seven months. And then I was finally sent to a neurologist and we tried anti-seizure medicine. And for whatever reason, that cured all the pain that I had. Um, But then later on, it ended up disqualifying me medically from flying. So then Hmm. my flying career was done like right then. Yeah. And so then, you know, the way it works in the Air Force is, okay, so you've got to find another job. What we're going to do is give you a list of undermanned career fields for your year group. So I graduated college in 2006. So it's every, every, all the, all the officers from 2006, look at what their careers are in and where they're undermanned. And here's your list and you've got to pick. And I'm like, 
Jeez. What does the rest of the Air Force do? I'm like, I don't know. I've just been flying and yeah. training and training to fly and flying to train and yeah. all this stuff back and forth. And so that's all I knew. I didn't I didn't know anything. I took all the support functions for granted because I was just like every day I was like, yeah. I gotta, I gotta pass my flight, I gotta fly, I gotta do well, right? <laughs> wow. And so, you know, my boss gave me um contacts in all those career fields so I could talk to them and figure out, you know, what I wanted to do next. And I ended up going for public affairs. Affairs, which was completely nice. different. Yeah, completely um, different than flying. Right? Yeah, totally. But a lot of my senior enlisted um, fellows were also like, "You're going to be really good at public affairs. This is this is your job." And I'm like, mm. "Really? It's so <laughs> different, you know?" But they were like, "It's your personality." And so I really, you know, I took their advice. You know, these are like seasoned master sergeants that have been taking care of airmen and running offices for for like 20 years, and they really understand people. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to go for it. It sounds good. And you can get good opportunities after the Air Force. And so I went to become a public affairs officer. And that's when I got my first assignment to Germany. Wow. Ooh. Nice. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I first started doing public affairs there at USAFIA of Africa, which stands for U.S. Air Forces in Europe and Air Forces Africa headquarters. Mm-hmm. So basically where I was at Ramstein Air Base, we were in charge of it, operations for the Air Force all over Europe and Africa as well. So oh. I got to be at the top part of that. It's called a major command, a MAGCOM, mm. which was great because as a new public affairs officer, I got to be around so many seasoned, experienced people and learn from them. And so from that, I got to do work throughout Europe and I got to go to sub-Saharan Africa. So oh, that was great. I've wow. been to Ghana and Niger, two totally oh. different countries, still right above the equator. So I've never been in the Southern Hemisphere. It's like uh, right I have been there. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <you laughs> Just have. briefly. Yeah. I went to Kenya for a little while oh, for, that's on awesome. a mission that's and great. they had like this sign we were uh like driving down to tanzania and they had a sign was like you are now passing equator and i was like oh nice <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool yeah. i've that, always how long were you in uh ghana and, and niger um so they were pretty short short trips so the one in niger was just about three days it was a quick in and out um, to talk to their Air Force and military leadership and see how we can like work together. And then I was in Ghana for two or three weeks and we were doing what's called a regional air chiefs conference. So we were hosting um, different air chiefs throughout that area in Africa to try to talk about the different assets they have in their air forces and how they can help each other. Because, you know, I think we kind of take it for granted that us in the military in the in, in the U.S., our inventory has everything you could possibly think of, yeah. right? Yeah. But like other other countries, you know, one may have a recon jet or one may have a cargo plane, right? But <laughs> they all don't have those. So we want to like help them help each other. Yeah. Yeah. Give them some, uh, give them some jets, let them exactly. buy them or some cargo jets or whatever they need. Yeah. They can help each other during like humanitarian crises, like mm-hmm. during bad weather, you know, they can, they can help each other. You know, Africa has the most amazing resources, but they don't, like the government just won't allow to for that full use of them. Is that kind of, you know, something, I mean, in the United States it's completely different, but did you kind of get that sense at all? Like, especially when you were there, you know, like you said, well, this place might have a cargo jet yeah. or something, but it just seems weird. Like that's been a running narrative of Africa. Just, they have the most amazing resources, but they haven't, they're not being put to use and they're not being kind of gathered. 
Yeah. And I don't know. It, it depends on the leadership in each country. And a lot of them change out, you know, kind of frequently. But with the experiences I had with their militaries, they were very eager to learn from each other. You know, they don't necessarily have those opportunities to just go over and see what, hey, what's Togo doing or, you know, whatnot. So being able to provide that um, that venue for them to talk together, they were very eager to do that. So that that demand is there, that desire is there. It's just, you know, maybe not a lot of times higher leaderships have that on their mind that we maybe we don't want help or maybe we don't want to ask for help, you know? Mm -hmm. So when we have this these kinds of conferences together where we can talk about and share, we can be like, hey, you know, at least you have in your inventory that, you know, if this happens, maybe we can ask this person for help or that person, mm -hmm. you know, and then they can kind <clears throat> of up-channel it that way. Nice. Did they have regular masses and like a chaplain at the base in Germany? In Germany? Oh, mm -hmm. yes. So I, I taught CCD there. Did you really? Nice. Yes, I did. Yes. So that was really great oh, to, to minister to military students and military children, you know, and, you know, we really take it for granted how tumultuous their lives are, especially I was teaching middle school and early high school students. And it's like, you know, after one or two years, they're leaving again. Mm -hmm. And so they don't get to have that continuity in like middle school and high school. And, you know, that's really hard on them when they're trying to figure out their own identities and a Catholic identity, yep. you know, my girlfriend, Germany yeah. on a base, you know, yeah. that's yeah. going to be very interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> my girlfriend, um, she is a military rat. So she's been all over the place. She moved nine times by the time she was 10. And she said like the biggest thing was, you know, just struggling to find that community. And her father was in the Air Force. And just kind of, you know, if you're here, I mean, and it's something that's, I mean, necessary, right? Because that's just how the military works. But like she said, I'd be here for two years and I'm trying to establish a community. Then you have to leave the next, you know, it's like a risk that the military takes. But I think it's obviously the men and women in the military, they don't get enough credit for what they do. And it's sad. I mean, we take a lot of things for granted, but we don't really know all the amazing things that the military does for us that keeps our country safe. The biggest thing for me is whenever I go around, like either it's in the airport somewhere or if it's like on the street, anywhere I'm kind of traveling, I see a lot of Vietnam veterans. Mm -hmm. And obviously they got the worst treatment out of all when they return from Vietnam. <clears throat> and it's just like these people have served our country honorably and a lot of them died in the jungles of Vietnam and we come back only to trash them. And, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, maybe you have, I don't know, but maybe like, have you noticed a lot of that kind of just around in the United States or where we see a lot of veterans just being, you know, mistreated and I think on average, 22 veterans commit suicide a day or something like that in the United States. Um, did, did you kind of get a sense of that at all, just being in the United States and just seeing things like that, or even in the military? So when it comes to veteran suicide, you're definitely right that the numbers are up 22 a day. Um, I think that the attitude toward current veterans right now generally with the population is more positive than it was for Vietnam vets. Um, I do think they got, you know, a rough deal, like you said, and it's very, very unfortunate because most of them were drafted and didn't have any choice to go. And they went and suffered and came home and it wasn't a happy, 
you know, homecoming. Um, but the biggest thing that we see today is that we've been at war for so long hmm. since 9-11. We've been in constant war overseas with no break for the last 20 years. And so a lot of our veterans have been through so many multiple deployments. They've lost relationships. They've had family issues. They have physical and mental issues. And so when they get out of the military, you know, it seems like, great, come back to society. Yay for you. <laughs> but, yep. you know, that transition can be really, really rough. Mm. And it's like unseen, you know, yeah. like with the Vietnam vets, like their issues were much more visible. I think just in that the way they were treated, like they were purposely mistreated, yeah. you know, which was very unfortunate and very wrong. Um, but nowadays I don't necessarily, me personally, I have not seen veterans that come back from war now that are transitioning into so into society being treated harshly so much as maybe there's an indifference, like not taking seriously how much help they do need mm -hmm. to transition back into society and back into civilian life. Because, you know, we get used to having this camaraderie with our own people, with our own units, right? And then we come out and like, where's that community? I don't have that community anymore. <laughs> Whereas everyone else has been spending their lives maybe in one place or they have family or they know where their good friends are and they have that stability and we're here making it up again after 15 20 years or however long we've served so it's different from just going to war you know and coming back home it's like we're coming back and we have to make new homes yeah right? <laughs> that's crazy that's, isn't it? yeah that's yeah we had uh steve on last time and he was talking about um he was at a i think at an rcia um because he was going through it at a class and uh somebody asked him like okay, what was like the happiest time in your life? Let's talk about it. He's like, oh yeah, the happiest time in my life was when I was in Afghanistan. Hmm. And then the guy who was leading, it was like, no way. The happiest time in my life was when I was in Vietnam. Wow. <laughs> and no. and I was just sitting here like, what did he just say? <laughs> I was like, are you serious? Uh, and, and then he just went, he was like, yeah, because all you do is you wake up like, are my guys good? Is my gun clean? All right, we got a mission to do. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. It's not like, here's your life. Mm -hmm. Now go live a life. You know what I mean? That yeah. type of... Um, that's just a totally different dynamic. And I think with veterans, we just say, okay, here's your life. Have a good time. You know? Yeah. Uh, instead of focusing on that rehabilitation, we kind of just lay it out for them. But yeah, it's, it's a sad thing. Um, so you, okay. May, 2019 yes. out of the military. And, um, did you say, what was your reason for for leaving at that time? Well, so I had like a series of more medical issues that okay. kind of kind of hit me since 2016. Um, I ended up getting put back on the medicine that I was on for my ears that made me stop flying. And so mm -hmm. it turns out I have fibromyalgia, which is this weird random nerve um, issue. Mm -hmm. um, I tore two ligaments in my knees and then I hurt my shoulder while serving in Korea and a whole slew of other issues that all hit me after 2016. Oh and it just became like physically impossible to walk around and to do things I wanted to do to work out. Mm -hmm. um, and I was at the Pentagon for my last assignment. Really? And wow. so there, there's Pentagon. lots of walking in DC, especially just to get to the Pentagon. I mean, just getting, you know, from the subway connecting subways up to the Pentagon and walking around to yeah. go up where you need, you know, it's a nice five-sided thing, but you get a lot of steps in, which is great, but it was not great for me with knee problems and foot problems. <laughs> um, so I pursued a medical retirement because um, I just, I felt like I couldn't 
be what I needed to be and do what I needed to do. And I felt like I was being like a sandbag, you know, like I was, I was holding people back and I didn't want to be a liability, you know, if I ever had to deploy because I physically couldn't move, you know, I couldn't run. I wouldn't be able to run away. I couldn't carry gear. Um, things were just really bogging me down. And so I had to take a look at myself and say, you know, I have to take myself out so that the mission can go on because I can't do this anymore. And so that was, you know, that was pretty tough because I'd wanted to stay in for 20 full years, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, But so then I had to go through a period of discernment. Okay, what do I do next? Okay, God, (laughs) like what is happening? Like clearly there is something spiritual happening because Mm -hmm. my body is breaking. And I, every time something starts breaking, I'm like, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I'll just run it off. Right. Because I, once my, once I had my knee surgery, I was trying to get back into working out as much as possible, you know, and I just kept getting worse and kept giving out. I'm like, okay. We'll just keep going, you know, and then something else would happen. And then I'm just like, okay, God is like slowly telling me like, no, I want you out. Like I felt like he literally had to break my body to be like, you are done with the military. Right. I think the fibromyalgia was the big one. Like, okay, so first your limbs, now your nerves, you're done. Right. So, um, so I knew that it was coming, but I didn't know when it would come or what when the decision would come down because, you know, you're like in this pile of all these people with other issues and stuff like that. So I just I didn't know what they were going to say, if they were going to keep me or like what were they going to do? But, you know, I just knew like I had to be honest, like I can't do this. I can't do it. I just can't, you know, and I think that's that was one of the hardest things I ever had to do was, you know, I had to fight for myself in a different way. You know, we we were taught as officers, like you got to fight for your people and, and do your mission. So I would always like make sure I stood up for my airmen. But then it's like, but what about me? And it's like, no, no, I'm fine. But I got to take care of you, you know, and so just having to say, you know, I got to take care of me and my body and this isn't helping the mission. And I feel like other people had to pick up, you know, the slack for me at work and I felt bad, like I can't do this, like my knee give out so I can't go give that tour or whatnot, like I can't do it. Um, So I had to be really honest with myself and, you know, fight for, you know, the medical care that I needed. So I was thinking about going to business school. So Mm. I was thinking about that. I'm like, okay, let's go. Cause I had a whole bunch of other friends that kind of followed that same path after the military. Like, sounds good to me, you know? Um, but there was just something that was kind of pulling me away from that. And I couldn't figure out what it was. So I decided to go on like a personal 40 day kind of cleanse and just like a, like a fast of things. So I cut out sugar except for coffee creamer. I'm like, God, I need that. (laughs) So like desserts and stuff, I just cut it out and Mm. I cut out secular music. So I was only listening to praise and worship music. Um, and I gave up one more thing. I can't remember, but yeah, desserts. Oh, wine. I gave up wine. Oh, that's hard. That's (laughs) hard. Yeah. And so I just, um, I was reading a lot of books and, you know, Dr. Scott Hahn happened to come to Fairfax to speak. And so I've been reading him since I was becoming Catholic. Um, his book, Hail Holy Queen really helped me out in understanding Mary's role, like back when I was doing RCIA. Mm -hmm. So I went to go see him there and I walked out with like 10 of his books, (laughs) you know, and came (laughs) home. And so it was just from the time I was starting that cleanse and I just started going through and like reading his books and just praying really hard and just keeping my mind focused on God. I'm like, I'm trying to listen. Like I'm, I'm sacrificing this, these things and this time to, to hear your voice. Right. And so that's when theology school started to pop into my head. And I'm like, okay, that's new, but you know, (laughs) (laughs) um, but so I'm like, okay, let's just, and I just had this like little voice that said, you know, just 
look up theology schools. And I'm like, okay. So I kind of start and I'm like, well, I need to start somewhere. How do I, how do I know where to go? So I just started looking up where Dr. Han goes. And so he <laughs> teaches here at Franciscan and he had talked all about the St. Paul center while, um, while he was at the talk. Mm-hmm. And so I looked up the St. Paul center and I, I looked at, I, I clicked on the link for the fellows. I'm like, where did they go to school? <laughs> I'm like, Where do smart theologian type people go to school? So, so I just like look at all their schools and I'd like click on them and just look at different schools. And so that's how I kind of did my research. Right. And like, nothing was really speaking to me, you know, I'm like, okay, this sounds nice and everything looks cool, but I don't know, something's not pulling me that direction. So I just ended up coming back to Franciscan's website. I'm looking at it. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, maybe I'll just give them a call. So I did. And I talked to the admissions officer for an hour and a half. And it was wow. like this amazing conversation. Yeah. And um, he and I became friends. Ryan Welch. Yeah. he was Ryan Welch, best. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so after I got off the phone with him, I literally danced around my house. I'm like, this is it. This is it. I'm going to Franciscan. I found it. I found I, it. I have seen the light. I've seen the light. <laughs> wow. You know, and I think about it and throughout my life, every decision that I've made, I was absolutely sure that was right. I was absolutely sure that I wanted to join the Air Force. I was absolutely sure that I wanted to fly planes. And then when that didn't work out, I was absolutely sure I want to do public affairs. And I was absolutely sure I wanted to go overseas. Right. So like I knew what I wanted at every moment. But then when I'm trying to figure out what to do next, when, you know, I was I was pursuing business school, like taking GMAT classes and asking lots of questions. I, I did not have that feeling. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, you know, not everything goes, you shouldn't just go by your feelings. Like feelings aren't everything. Right. So mm-hmm. just keep going with it. Right. But you know, there's like something deeper than feelings. It's like, you know, something in your gut that just like, you know, when you listen to the Holy spirit and you pray, he guides you to where you're supposed to go. And I'm like, something is pulling me away from this, even though it seems so good. Right. And so, but then when I did my fast and then I called Franciscan, like, like that was it. That was what was missing was this is it. This is my moment for this. And I didn't apply to any other school. I'm like, I'm going to go to Franciscan. <laughs> I did the exact same thing. I didn't apply to any other school. I came straight to Franciscan. I was like, they have a great commerce program here and it's Catholic. Yeah. Man, right. why do I do this? Go for it. I got to say your the ability and, you know, God's grace and your character as well to have those, okay, going to the Air Force, I'm going to be a pilot, you know, do all the training and everything and can't be a pilot. You say, okay, what do I do next? You know, like, I'm going to trust in the Lord. I'm sure, you know, it's always difficult and you trust in the Lord and you're like, okay, public affairs. Got really good at that, had a great career in it. And then, yeah, this coming down with sickness like that and um, being like, okay. Okay, Lord, you know, you're writing the the script. Like what what's the next thing? Yeah. I don't know. And then know. all of a sudden, yeah. you know, we're next to each other in church history and yeah. Dr. Trek, and I'm not paying attention at all. I will admit you probably <laughs> noticed in that class. And I'm sure you're like, this is the place I'm learning and stuff. I'm been like, I've been here for four years. All right, whatever. I'm just kind of like hanging out on my computer, or whatever. And then, but yeah, you've You've been through all of that, and I'm just like taking it for granted here at Franciscan. I'm just like, oh, I'm just enjoying life, whatever. But Wow. Praise God. And, and that, okay. Yeah. Testament to God's grace and to your character to be able to, to oh. move through all that. Is, Thank you. It's very, uh, yeah. And, and that just blows me away. 
people here at Franciscan. You know? like, I know. Like that <laughs> so we many came different, to. Yeah. There's so many different like personalities and Jesus. Providential is, place. This, Jesus, this Franciscan. It, Jesus? It's really strange. You know, just from like a Dr. Han talk, you know, randomly, you're like, you know what? Let's, let's give him a call. Let's see yeah. what happens. You know <laughs> exactly. what I mean? Exactly. Jesus is awesome, but he is weird, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you. He's weird, man. He's got a weird taste in cities, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Jesus is weird, man. Like he he leads you on the most strange paths you'll ever see. And then you end up at a place like this. It's like, all right, Lord, you you, you had something in mind before I started this journey, but hey, I'm I'm on board. But yeah, he, strange dude <laughs> how have you liked it great guy bill. Is, is this your second semester here yes it's my it's my second year here so second I, year yeah so yeah oh my gosh so yeah every the timing worked out so great with retirement you know i got the official notification that you are being medically retired hmm. and that was in like april of 2019 and i'd already applied and gotten accepted to franciscan but awesome. i had the option to defer a year because i didn't know you know, I knew like at some point I'm going to go to the school, whether or not I leave the Air Force now or later, like I'm going to the school. And so the decision came down to medically retire me in April of 2019. And, you know, once I make that decision, they don't waste any time. Like you have like six weeks to get out. And so I had to like, ooh, get all my stuff together. And luckily, since I was at the Pentagon, you know, um, Steubenville is only five hours from from there. So yeah, yeah. I, I did take several weekend trips to come up here and to like see the school, find a place to live, which so that that having that tightness there, like that closeness was, was really great. But so retiring at the end of May was so such a blessing because then I had the whole summer until I started school in August and I got to go home to Kansas and be with my mom and my siblings and my niece and nephews. And just to have that like time, because my mom hadn't been around me for more than a week in 13 years. Wow. Because of, wow. you know, I'll, I'll come and, and visit for vacation for a holiday or for a weekend. And then, mm -hmm. you know, I'll go back. And then, you know, my parents are divorced. So I got to go see my dad. And then I have my grandparents. And I have aunts and uncles. And I'm mm -hmm. I'm the one that likes to make the rounds. <laughs> you know, I'm the oldest child on both sides mm -hmm. of my family. So I'm like always going around. So my mom didn't really get to have as much time with me as, you know, if I if I had lived there. So three months at home. And That's then awesome. I moved here in August and started school. Wow. So, yeah, I'm in my second year. And. Yeah, it's it's nice. I like the location of our school, like mm -hmm. being on a hill, because it's very, very yeah. different from the rest of the town. It's almost like being on a base, like yeah. you know. <laughs> no, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Right? Yeah. It's I agree. Little, it's a little yeah, it Franciscan yeah. base in Steubenville. There are times I'm like headquarters. Yeah. <laughs> there are times I still say I almost say like, oh, I have to go on base. I mean, on campus. You know? it's like, <laughs> uh, I'm so used to Catholic it. base. We're going on the Catholic base. Yeah, yeah. It's it like is. instead of a gate guard, it's like an angel guard. You yeah, know, let you like go all the troops together. walking around. Yeah. Got the professor, uh, sergeants. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, second year here. Yeah, that's great. We've both was it fourth year? Uh, I I transferred, so I did three years. I no. graduated, but I'm, I'm gonna probably be here for the next couple of years working with sports and stuff. But, um, yeah, we love it. Yeah, we love it. Hey, telling you. Uh, I'm telling you, it's great. Um, so yeah, I I grew up having my family close to me all the mm -hmm. time. My grandparents lived like 10 minutes away and my uncle lived like a couple hours away. But in your situation, they, everybody was spread out, right? Yes. What, what was that like? Kind of just, was there any kind of worry there? Be like, man, I really want to visit this person, but I just can't right now. It's far away. Did you ever kind of just 
feel that kind of worry or maybe not so much a worry, but like a concern. I want to visit these people, but you know, everything's so far away. Definitely for my grandparents. So when I was in the Air Force, I had three living grandparents. And, you know, when I went to Europe, I was very excited, you know, and I'm there in Germany. So I could easily fly back across the Atlantic to see them because my one set of grandparents, my dad's parents lived in New Jersey. And then my mom's mom is in Florida. So, you know, it's right there. Right. But after Germany, when I got assigned to Korea, Oh. And it was a remote assignment. So that means you don't bring your family. You don't bring all your things. You're just there for a full year. Um, and it's very, very hard work because, you know, we're technically still at war with North Korea. And so we're just constantly preparing because that's all we've been doing for the last 60 years is prepare for whenever whatever comes next. If prepare it comes. for Rocket Man. What are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so so there I lived in a dorm on base and it was it's like a deployed environment, but mm-hmm. you're not, you know, in combat, but you could be at any <clears> moment. <throat> I had my real world gear. So that's like, you know, if things go bad, then that's you put on that gear, you know, to protect yourself from. But you were in South weapons. Korea, right? Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, no, no. We're all in South Korea. Yeah. yeah. Were you yeah. in Seoul? No, I was much farther south than that at Kunsan Air Base. And so the purpose of our base um, is to bring in all the follow-on forces so that if we end up going to war, they will all be based at our base. (laughs) And then we can take the fight north. So defend the base, accept follow-on forces, and take the fight north. That's the wolf pack at Kunsan Air Base. That's our mission there. So I was there for a year. And so while I was there, I was so deathly paranoid and afraid that I would get that call that one of my grandparents had passed away mm. because there wouldn't be much I could do. And I was, it didn't really hit me when I went to Germany, but when I was in Korea, I was really scared. And I prayed so hard to God to keep my grandparents alive while I was in <clears> Korea. <throat> and so in between Europe and Korea, um, I went and saw all three of my grandparents before I went to before I went to Korea. And mm-hmm. so, you know, my parents were like, are you going to come home before you go? I'm like, look, I'm going to see grandma and grandpa in New Jersey. That's my dad's parents. If you want to come see me, come see grandma and grandpa because that's where I'll be. <laughs> and then I'm like, I'm going to Florida to see my grandma on my mom's side. And so my mom and stepdad came down. <laughs> so like everyone came to where I was like, I'm seeing my grandparents. Like I love my grandparents and they're older. They're in their 80s. And, you know, thankfully, by God's grace, he kept them alive for me while I was in Korea. And so I came back and got to spend a lot of time with them. And fortunately, being at the Pentagon, I was only two and a half hours away from New Jersey. And when my um, my dad's parents, both of them passed away within a year of each other, I got to be there at their bedside. Wow, so beautiful. Yeah. So God really blessed me that way. But I asked for that. And so mm. I've got one living grandmother left in Florida. I'm going to see her in December. So awesome. I'm very excited. We're in Florida. I, she lives in Merritt <laughs> Island, which is by Cape Canaveral. So it's on okay. like the eastern side right there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. We'll be in Orlando in December. Yeah. Seriously? <laughs> down and we have a well my girlfriend uh she lives down there so she's gonna get us into disney world for free because she has somebody that works there so we're gonna be going to disney world that (laughs) is so cool (laughs) you know i really love orlando studio or universal studios and islands of adventure i spend all my time in those areas i haven't actually been to disney world since i was i haven't been to universal i've been a lot of time at disney world yeah but not not to universal I got yeah. yeah. Well, I have an extra two weeks before my parents come, so maybe we'll hit up okay. Universal one of the days. Maybe you should. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's so great. The rides are great. Harry Potter World is amazing, and I can, that's gonna be awesome. Yeah, they have the. Um, I don't know if you guys watch Harry Potter, but they have the train that's in the 
in the movies. It takes yeah. you between Islands of Adventure and you. Oh, Those are like, yeah, that is so, great. It's so, so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's really cool. I'll have to give it a shot. Yeah, yeah. Because I've done Disney a, a bunch of times, but yeah, not Universal. So you were stationed in South Korea. Yeah. <clears throat> um, south of Seoul, mm-hmm. and that was. During the how long ago was that? That was um, 2014 to 2015. So Kim Jong Un is obviously the North Korean leader. I have to ask: Is there ever? So I guess right now the four I guess main concerning countries that the U.S. has is North Korea, Russia, Iran, and uh, China. Sure. Um, Is there a difference between? Okay, we're we're stationed here. And obviously we're preparing for anything, but is there a difference between just like preparing for everything and preparing for everything? And then also saying, Oh, there's something going on here. Like there's an actual situation. Cause obviously I feel like in, in the military it's constant preparation for whatever's going to happen. But is there a difference between that and also kind of saying, okay, Kim Jong-un's really shady right now. Is there something going on here or is it just all, all just preparation? I mean, it's kind of both. You know, like we keep tabs on what's happening, you know, but all you can do is prepare. Yeah. So, yeah. <clears throat> That's how I feel like it would be. A even bit though, different yeah. than Germany, I'm sure. Than, yeah, a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. there it's NATO and, you know, that you've you're got in Russia Germany. There. You're like yeah. the heart, you know, you're good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Did you like uh, South Korea? Did you get to travel around at all? I did a little bit. I got to go to Seoul and I did a half marathon at wow. the DMZ. Right? Oh my yeah. God. I what? I, Whoa. I, I, thought, I thought it was going to be right there at the gate, but it's like far away from the gate. But it's technically the DMZ marathon. Wow. Yeah. So you're like in. <laughs> is it a military marathon? Like sponsored by the military or anything? Or is it a civilian? You know, I think it's civilian, but there were Korean soldiers that were running okay. it. And then we go up and then like we kind of all from different American bases go up, but it's all like Korean civilians that kind of do it. And it was really fun. And at the end, you get a bag of rice, which I still have. No, <laughs> yeah. I'm wow. like, I don't want to eat it because <laughs> it's like my, yeah, it's my your memory of it. Yeah, exactly. My memory. And then afterwards, like, so, oh, so beforehand, they did like group aerobics, like Korean, like K pop, like doing all the, like, yes. you know, like, yeah. the stretching and stuff and then afterwards like the post the post marathon food was oh because you, you could do a you could do a full marathon I think I ended up doing the half they're like multiple races I think mm. and so afterwards you get like the bibimbap and the bulgogi and I'm like oh it's like this amazing Korean food and it was all oh, super tasty Korean food is so wow. good Korean so barbecue good. oh my god my, so good my younger sister loves BTS she's in love with <laughs> she's in love with all the Korean yeah. K-pop um, K-pop oh, okay. she loves that um, yeah she always she's always wanted to go to Seoul we we have a we have BTS poster in the yeah. other room. He has, for some, he for some reason is weird and has a BTS poster in his room. <laughs> Look, I bought it from Walmart, all right? You know, they had it there. I was like, I got to get it, and I brought it back. And instead of putting it in here, I put it, you know, in uh, Paul and Gabe's room. <laughs> That's awesome. Anyways. When I was on a bus, like going from place to place, they have like Korean soap operas like playing at the front of the oh bus. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Oh really? Yeah. yeah. How, I want to visit South Korea. Yeah, how extravagant cool. was it? I mean, is it like you see in the movies? It's like these beautiful high rises all this technology the color in the city like is that what it's like yeah seoul seoul is pretty much like that um it's also very americanized especially outside mm. um where i was stationed u.s forces korea i forgot the name of the base it's slipping my tongue don't hate me people that are listening <laughs> uh, young song young song young song yeah 
Shout out to Young Sun. It's the army base that's right there in Seoul. And so I I spent a lot of time there. You go outside the gate to like, it's called Itaewon. That's like where like all, it's like the main part outside the gate. And it's all like KFC and Taco Bell. (laughs) Crazy American stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's very Americanized, but, you know, very highly technological, free citywide Wi-Fi so, oh, wow. Yeah, nice. which was great because, you know, on my iPhone that I had brought over, you know, it didn't have a Korean number. So I only was able to use it during Wi-Fi. <laughs> so I was able to use it throughout all of Seoul. And so, yeah, they're very like into their technology and, you know, they're a fast paced democracy. In, in your cool. opinion, do you like to most of the countries that you've been to, do the locals like having Americans there and having a base like it being there? Or do they kind of feel like, well, I feel like. There's so much American kind of influence here. Maybe it's kind of even affecting our culture or I'm not sure, but Mm. do the locals like where the base have been? Are they happy that Americans are there? So my personal experiences, it's very interesting because Germany was very different from Korea. So in Europe, you know, it seems very favorable toward Americans from my personal experience. The Germans are used to having us there since the 1950s. Um, And I did this amazing, um, it's called TDY, so temporary duty. So I did this um, conference with German soldiers. So it was like Air Force and then German military together called House Risen. And we were just talking about, you know, what we have in common and how, things we can do together. And one of the speakers started talking about what we did for the Germans during the Berlin airlift, you know, when they were mm-hmm. stuck and isolated <clears throat> without food. And he actually started crying while he was talking about it. And he was like, we are still grateful for what you've done for us. Mm-hmm. And That's so, awesome. yeah, so they're, it seems very favorable. You know, I mean, everyone's going to have their own opinion. There might be people there that kind of want us out, but mm. you know, they're kind of used to us there. Yeah. And I think we've gotten them into fried chicken and Mexican food. Cause we have, and you know, we have our, our partners in Eastern Europe that are very grateful for our presence that ask us to help train them so <laughs> that they can, you know, keep Russia at bay, you know, by right. themselves. So we do a lot with the Baltic nations in Poland. And so they're really happy to have us there, you know, but in Korea, you know, it's, it's a little bit different. Um, you know, they're, they're very homogenous people and they're very into their own culture. And so it's like our presence wasn't as much welcomed so much as tolerated, hmm. you know, hmm. and that's okay because, you know, there are allies and we're there to protect them. And, you know, if need be, we will give our lives to save them from any kind of attack from North Korea. But it was more like when I would see other Koreans walking around, if I was in my uniform, it'd be more like a, a look and a curiosity. Whereas in Germany, they might actually try to talk to you hmm. a little bit more, but that's, yeah, that was my personal experience with that. Hmm. That's cool. That's really cool. I mean, and it's, yeah, it shows you kind of the Americanization of into other countries, which is a good thing. Um, and obviously the United sometimes. States, so, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. And obviously I think the world thinks that we're the protector of the world, which I think is a good thing because, you know, the United States free country we strive to help other countries become more free. Um, but yeah, that, that's really cool. And yeah, the Koreans are very, very, I don't know if this is the word culturized. 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 I don't know. Oh, what? Well, like, like the American very, culture? They're very, yeah, very. I mean, it's definitely different than North they're Korea. They're very, sure. very. Um, they lo- in love with their culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, which is really cool. Um, I've always wanted to go to South Korea. 
We could do that on our Japan, South Korea, <clears throat> just yes. trip that we were thinking about. Do. We were thinking about going because um, when we studied abroad in Austria, Franciscan University has a abroad prog- program in Austria, and we went to the Holy Land for ten days. And we were also thinking about for another ten day trip going to Japan. Never worked <laughs> out. I yeah. wanted to go. Yeah, we were like, couldn't justify the $1,000 ticket to fly from Austria to Japan. I mean, it'd be closer from, uh, almost closer from California. Yeah. Yeah. We, we could have just flown <laughs> yeah. from there. Yeah. Where, where are you from originally? So I was born in New Jersey, and then I moved to Kansas City when I was a teenager. So that's okay. where I went to school, and that's where my mom and my siblings are. All yeah. Right. My dad's we're both West Coast. We're California. Mm-hmm. Really? So. Yeah. I do love Washington and Oregon. Oh my Some gosh! My spots. In the I whole could country. live in Wash. I could live in Washington and Oregon. There's so. Where have you been there? In Washington. Um. So I've been to Fairchild Air Force Base mm-hmm. to do my survival training, and then so that's survival in Spokane, training. Washington. Um. And then I visited Navy friends out in Whidbey Island. So I've gotten to see like where the killer whales are in the Puget Sound, but I never actually have seen them yeah, yet. Wow. But yeah. So I've done like lots of fun hiking up there. It's just so beautiful. Um, and then of course to Seattle. Um, and then I did my own personal spiritual retreat at this, um, at this retreat center in Oregon. That's like an hour South of Portland. And it's right by Silver Falls state park. It's called the Christian renewal center. And you can just go do your own personal retreat. And it was just really great. And yeah. So I did a lot of hiking and waterfalls. So yes. yeah, I just love the outdoors, like the beauty of it in the Pacific <sighs> Northwest. There's like nothing like it. Like There's the West, like it. the West has just like natural beauty that's yeah. just like unparalleled. You know, yeah, it's Washington, crazy. North California, and Oregon with like yeah the the redwoods and all that. It's Even crazy. like San Diego and you know, the I, beaches. I love Southern California, Utah yeah. with all the uh, yeah. I don't know, Moab, whatever. Zion. Yeah. So how has uh, how's been studying theology now for almost two years? Do you, do you like it? Is it a different way of thinking or? That's what I, you're getting your degree in is yes, theology? Okay. theology. And then I'm getting a specialization in catechetics since I've oh, taught right. CCD throughout my military <clears throat> career, like all over the country, different ages. So I'm like, you know, let's just do this specialization and get better at teaching catechesis. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's really great because I've learned so much that I feel like I should have known the last <laughs> 13 years that I've been Catholic, you mm-hmm. know, like I, I got the basics in RCIA and then it's like, okay, Air Force time, you know, yeah. and not really, not really thinking deeply. I haven't really looked at the catechism until I came here and mm-hmm. there's just so much beauty and depth in, in the catechism. Um, and just like understanding why we believe things. And now I'm looking back and I'm like, man, how did they let me teach CCD before <laughs> as a volunteer? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, I should have done this. I should have taught this, you know? So it's just like learning all this stuff. But um, when I was teaching CCD, a, a lot of times, like I was asked to teach the Bible stuff because that's what I knew as a Protestant. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I bring that um, to my Catholic faith and to my Catholic community is, is my Bible knowledge and my love for the Bible that I want to share with everyone at the same time here. I'm getting what I've been missing is understanding our traditions. And I've never read church documents before. And I'm like, oh my goodness, all this is so unified. It's amazing throughout history. You know, it's just, it's, it's always just blowing my mind every day. Yeah. Me too. I haven't, I didn't really read Catholic, uh, documents. Uh, until I got to Austria, which is, I mean, I'm sure I have before, but I don't remember. And we read a lot of, um, oh man, there's so many. Well, we read a lot of the Summa mm-hmm. and then Cassie Kanubi. Um, cool. Yeah. yeah. Pius, um, Pius yeah. nine. All that stuff. It's yeah. really fascinating, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I obviously want to get more into reading the Bible because 
the Bible is, it just has so many amazing stories. I love stories and I love reading the Bible because there's, there's so much context, but there's also like great stories in there mm-hmm. that really prove faith. Mm-hmm. Like they really show faith. Well, who mm-hmm. was, it was Abraham, right? That was told to sacrifice his sons. Yes. It's on Isaac. Isaac. Yeah. His son, Isaac. Mm-hmm. And he went all the way up to the point where he was, had an Just act, right? To. And then mm-hmm. the angel came and stopped and said, wow, your, your faith has saved your son. He <laughs> 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 yeah. had a, a lot of faith. Uh, but. Yeah. What I really love about that story, and that's something that we kind of got into, I think, last year is one of the verses that I hadn't noticed before, which I can reference. Please. You, you have your, um, you brought your Bible. Yeah, you were I prepared. Did. I did. Um, it's, you know, Isaac. Genesis 22. Yes. So at this point, what we don't realize a lot of people is that Isaac, who is the son, at this point, he's carrying the firewood, right? So he's like a well-grown boy. He's like 13 or 14 years old. Right. Mm. And as his father is tying him to the altar, like he could have easily resisted. Like, what are you doing? Like, not me, you know, and he didn't fight. Like, so it's also a testament to Isaac's faith, Hmm. you know, that he allowed his father to tie him up there. And like what Abraham says to Isaac, um, I can't see it, find it exactly. I don't want to spend too much time. But basically, um, Isaac says, you know, where is where is the sacrifice? Where where is the where is the lamb? And what Abraham replies and saying is that God will provide the sacrifice, Mm -hmm. you know. So it's like even though he, he knows that God is telling him to perform this act, he still has faith that he won't take away his only son, which he had promised him. Wow. Wow. Yep. Behold the fire in the wood. Where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And then they keep going up. You're just like, mm, <clears throat> crazy. Yeah. yeah, didn't I think Han may have brought it up in class of Abraham's faith was also that um, possibly that God would resurrect his son, mm-hmm. right? Even if he did kill his son, wow. that God would resurrect him. No and so the way. faith that he had in God was, if I kill my son... Um, and I'm doing it in obedience to God and God wills. And I think, you know, Abraham believed that God is good and that, that was, you know, accounted to him as righteousness. Where if you take like Adam and Eve, they distrusted that God was good in taking the, you know, being disobedient. Cause you're basically saying like, you're, you're hiding something from me, right? Right. Yeah. God's hiding something from me that I deserve in justice. Therefore God yeah. is evil. But like Abraham had faith, even to offering his son. Uh, oh, yeah, that is just so, uh, it's so <laughs> yeah. amazing. Uh, Jesus works in the, I'm telling you, man, he's weird. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, the faith that some of these stories really show, like it's such a Testament. We're called to be witnesses in this world and we have all the tools to do that. Yeah. And it's done. Doesn't Paul say to like, um, you know, God has used uh, the foolish of this world to shame the wise, you know? It's like when you read these things, you're like, that sounds stupid. God said to go kill your son or something. One of my favorite authors, Dostoevsky, one of his characters, Ivan, said, the the stupider a thing is, the closer it is to the truth. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Interesting. But I, you know, I think today everyone just dismisses this stuff as just like, oh, a bunch of stories. You know, well, they, they say just stories, but they mean it in the negative sense. Not like in it's good mythology. Sense. Like, yeah, it's mythology or it's just yeah. stupid. And they're like, yeah, he tried to sacrifice his son. Obviously, God's being evil and these are terrible stories. And it's just like, what? <laughs> You're right. missing. Yeah. 
I mean, they, it, from a power dynamic, it's like, you know, you're trying to read this as a postmodern or something like that. You're definitely not going to get very far. Yeah. But. Yeah. And it's also amazing how the old and new connect so well. Mm. So like when you're talking about faith, what immediately came to mind was Hebrews 11, which actually talks about the faith of Abraham. And so I'll just read you the verse real quick that talks about what we just said. So it's chapter 11, verse 17. And so it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was ready to offer up his only begotten son of whom it was said through Isaac shall your descendants be named. He considered that God was able to raise men even from the dead. Hence, he did not. Hence, he did receive him back. And this was a symbol. Hmm. Sorry. Paul said it first, not Han. (laughs) (laughs) So. Wow. Wow. Jeez, this is so much to it. Oh, man. That's another thing that I've really relished since coming to Franciscan is I'd never heard of typology before and connecting the old to the new, how Christ is hidden in the old and revealed in the new and just seeing all these connections. I love puzzles. I love treasure hunting. And so it's always just like a joy to read the Old Testament and see, oh, is this foretelling Christ? Like I can Mm. see a Christ figure here or a a Joseph figure or a Mary figure or something or a Trinitarian symbol that shows and reflects God's love that he's trying to slowly reveal to us over time. Yeah. Blows your mind, man. It does. You know, and I'm reading uh, Cardinal Seurat's book, uh, The Power of Silence, right now. I don't know if you've seen it, but um, he, it's just, it's just, uh, I, I don't know, like, um, what was it? C.S. Lewis's quote about, we live in a dictatorship of noise, that um, everything's just busy, noise, what we're doing next. These stories take so much time. I mean, the Bible in general takes so much time to really seep in and like, you're like, wait a second. God told Abraham to sacrifice his son. How do I understand that? Mm -hmm. Han brings it up a lot. Like we should just be like, huh? Like what? What are you talking about? (laughs) Like that should be our constant. And to really delve into that, that spirit of it, you got to be, have that silence and that kind of inner peace to just work through these different things and see it in the light of faith and let it work through you. Liturgical hermeneutic. It's like the church, you are reading scripture within that living heartbeat of the church who's trying to understand this as she she herself is moving towards you know the ultimate perfection in christ but oftentimes we're just so busy it's like yeah okay word of god you know god gave us an entire book well lots of books put together (laughs) with what he wanted to communicate to us uh you know what screw that i'm gonna you know go watch netflix or whatever it's like (laughs) and we never give ourselves any time to actually be like oh well maybe he is trying to say something to me here (laughs) yeah I don't know if this is true or not, but um, Muslim kids growing up, they're taught to memorize the Quran. I don't know. Is that true? Um, I mean, I think that's what some of them do in some countries. I think every mosque is different, so I can't really speak to any of that. But I know that is a practice of like memorizing it. Yeah. How do you memorize something like that? To recite it? That's just... it's. Man, I can. In the beginning, there was the word. Memorize this, uh, Kellen. Did you hear the story about uh, Joseph? I think Joseph Cupertino, but he wanted to become a priest. And back in medieval days, if you wanted to become a priest, you had to memorize the entire Bible. Oh, like my they made God. You. And so they would test you by just picking a random chapter verse and saying, like, tell me what it was. And Cupertino just prayed and said, Lord, I'm, I can't memorize any of it. I'm not even going to try. And he only knew one verse. 
which is the shortest verse, which is, um, and Jesus wept in, um, after, after Lazarus, <laughs> and they asked you know, him before, and then he comes <laughs> to the, the trial and they go, okay, please recite for us, uh, John 12, 23. <laughs> no and then he goes, and Jesus wept. No! <laughs> And, oh, no. and he became priest. No. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, that is wow. gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> Pray, keep the faith, you know, and maybe you'll get exactly the biblical verse. <laughs> maybe, oh maybe we should get into gosh. memorizing it again. I don't know. How many you books know? has Scott Hahn wrote? A lot. A lot. <clears throat> yeah. He's brilliant. And he's still. Oh, wait. No, I think he's. Oh, I. So I went to. A, I had a lunch with. This is when we brought Peter Craig. Yeah, that's, he's yeah. he's written what ninety six books or something. Yeah, he's written a ton, but I think Hans passed the list. Uh, he's written or is pretty approaching like writing as many books as he is old, like years old. Oh. and I think Crave has surpassed it, and Han was like praising him for you know surpassing that number of books written versus Jeez. years lived, which is just like wow. Already, I'm just like I couldn't write a book at all. <laughs> Give me a hundred years, I could barely write one. <laughs> And it would still be hot garbage. So uh, you never but. know. You just need one to get you into that into that writing Good spirit. Point. Yeah, it's true. I, but my I've, writing's garbage. Yeah, still, like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not at the writing center. Send me your stuff. Great. Yeah. I should. Do you, All right. Do you uh, work there time to write a book. Center? Do you work? I at the, do. Okay. Yes. I'm definitely going. I'm not even a student, but I, I'm. Oh. Man. You can write a book, Kellen. What would you put in that book? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's got a, a story to share. Everyone the Kellen and Alex show. The, a story. <laughs> <laughs> Written by Kellen. <laughs> so there uh, we were in the million man. dollar studio. <laughs> I, I uh, Man, one of my craziest stories was I have this scar right here. Well, it's from a. Uh, well, it was a surgery that I got. Um, when you almost died. So. <laughs> I was on my, the only sport, okay, so there's so many parts I have to keep backtracking to myself. So, so you're going to write a biography, that's what you're saying. <laughs> Basically, I'm loose-jointed, loose-ligamented, so okay. I'm more prone to injury, so that's why I didn't play any high school sports except for mountain biking. So our team was called the Nevada Union Mountain Biking Team, and we would do crazy rides like on Saturday and Sunday, or Saturday, where we would go like 30 miles plus with thousands of feet of climbing and five plus hours. So it was race day and before every race, we do a pre-ride mm-hmm. um, just to ride the course. And I think on that pre-ride, I might've fallen down because we were doing, there were some really complex parts that we had to do. Um, and a lot of it was downhill. And so naturally, if you're going slow and trying to learn it, you're, you have less momentum and you're, you might fall. So I think what had happened was I took a tumble. Mm-hmm. And I did the race, but next couple of days, my neck started having some searing pain. And over the next couple of weeks or next week, I was like sweating through all my bed sheets. And I just was having terrible neck pain, couldn't even move my neck. Thank the Lord. My parents are family practice doctors. So my mom kind of knew what was going on. Wow. So finally, my mom said, we got to take you in to get a blood test. And basically they have this measurement kind of measures how sick you are. Like it's called a band count. I don't know if you've heard of that before, but it kind of measures your white blood cell count. And <clears throat> the average um, white uh, band count for a person is like seven to eight to nine, 10, I think something like that. Mine, we got the results back. It was 49, 
which basically means that if you don't go to the hospital now, you're going to die. Wow. So we got a, an ambulance and they rushed me like 90 miles an hour <clears throat> to the closest hospital. Got surgery uh, right here. And it was like a 30 minute surgery. But apparently what happened was, is I must have had like an open wound. Mm-hmm. I basically got sepsis. So I had an open oh. wound somewhere and the infection got in, gotten into my bloodstream. Oh my goodness. Wow. They saved me like a couple hours from death and they took out this big ball of pus like this big out of my neck. It just had to settle in my neck. Um, I remember crying when I got out of the surgery just naturally. I don't really know why, but it was one of the most tense moments. The doctor saved (laughs) The surgeon that performed the surgery, his name was Dr. Graves. (laughs) 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 "Ah, Doc, what's your name? Dr. Graves. (laughs) That's terrible. (laughs) Can you imagine Doc, ever, please like, do a good job. Oh my god. Can you ever imagine like recommending that doctor? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Man, I went to Dr. Graves. Was, uh, <laughs> I had a great time. It was scary. But uh it's right Lord. down the he works with the uh, nurse casket or something. I <laughs> my my blood cells were replicating like two hundred thousand times faster than they should have been. Wow. So the sickness was so bad that my blood white my white blood cells were just replicating so fast to fight the sickness. It shows you how precious life is. Like I'm a healthy young guy and mm-hmm. I don't usually have any problems, but this staph infection, sepsis, she got into my bloodstream and like felt like I was paralyzed. Like I felt like I couldn't even move. It hurt so bad right here in my neck. And basically what happened was, is they had to go in and there was, after that, there was a hole in my neck. So they, they, I mean, basically what happened was they, it's just disgusting. I'm sorry. But they had to put a straw in there. So basically, so to get the suction out of all the gooey stuff in there. So basically for the next like week, I had this, I was literally walking around with a straw hanging out of my (laughs) 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 neck. I know it's disgusting, but my dad, he's a doctor as well. And he dressed it every night. They put iodine and he, they went in there with a a Q-tip and cleaned it out. And then, so the purpose was, for it to heal from the inside up. Cause you don't want it to heal right here. And then to still be, because oh, okay. you know, you want, yeah. cause if you have an infection, you want it to heal from the far inside of the body all the way out to the skin mm-hmm. instead of it healing right here. And then everything else is open down here. So basically I remember, Oh man, taking a shower was the weirdest thing. Oh my gosh. How did you, <laughs> do you have to put like a thing? I don't know. It? I don't even remember you like a straw I, extension. Uh, yeah. Like literally what I had to do is I had to wash my body off with one hand. Cause I had to use the other one to keep the straw in. <laughs> so, from getting sepsis part two. Yeah, I know it was disgusting, but my dad dressed it and he, it was open and he put like gauze in there and to help it eventually heal. It was the weirdest thing, man. It was crazy. It's so weird you can go from like, oh, mountain biking accident to, to sepsis about to die. Sepsis you know what I mean? Right. Especially Everybody has a story. It didn't seem like that big of a no, I was fine. I went through my race and I was okay. But it started hitting me a couple of days after and it was like, it was the most searing pain I've ever had. Mm-hmm. I've never had worse pain than that. It was, it's funny. You know, it, I was able to just move my neck just like a touch and that was it. And I was like, what is going on here? What the heck happened to me? <laughs> yeah. wow. So anyways, Lord saved my life. Dr. Graves saved my life. <laughs> Jesus works in weird ways. <laughs> Jesus works in weird ways. But wow. um, yeah, it's, 
One of my crazy stories. I could glad, write you, a, glad you're here. You could write a book on it. I yeah. could write a book. Right? On it. So are there any theological topics or whatever that you're working on now specifically? Well, I'm still writing my paper on John Calvin. Which oh, I missed that presentation. You did, yes. I, okay. Who's John Calvin? <laughs> uh, he was one of the reformers. With, uh, the okay. leading reformer. Yeah. He pretty much with standardized. The, the, wait, the Protestant Reformation? Yes. No. Oh, yeah, okay. he's one generation after Luther. Oh, shoot. Yeah. No bueno. So how's that yeah. going? It's good. You know, I'm learning. The reason why I chose that is because I was raised Presbyterian. So I was raised basically in the Calvinist tradition as a child because both my grandfathers were Presbyterian pastors. Right. And so it was all Bible, Bible, Bible growing up. I learned how to read on Bible stories. I read Bible stories every night. I've read the Bible, you know, multiple times. It's part of my daily life. And I'm, you know, so grateful for those experiences. Um, but now that I've, you know, been called home into the Catholic church and going back and looking at the actual principles, you know, such as predestination, um, I'm just like, wow, how did he get here? You know, and it's true that during the Reformation time period, there were a lot of, you know, abuses in the church that just weren't being addressed properly. And so it seems as though this is what the church is, you know, and even now we might see that today, like people criticize the church for, you know, wrongs that we, that we have throughout abuses that, that go unnoticed or unprosecuted. And it seems like this is the culture of the church, but, you know, we get into this habit of tolerating things that we shouldn't. And these are the results that we mm. have from it, you know? Um, so like Luther, I think had a lot of reason to be upset, you know, with, with things that were happening, but to completely break away and to change how we think and to change how we worship, you know, I don't think that was the original intent, but somehow this rebellion just kind of, just kind of took hold and it was too late for the church to bring them back. And so what we have are these really strange ideas of predestination and how, you know, we don't have free will. Like, how did we get from, you know, we need to we need to take care of each other and and, you know, rid ourselves of abuses and clerical abuses and things like that. How do we get from there to we don't have any free will at all as humans? You know, I, I don't understand um, where that came from. I just I think it's a very sad teaching mm. to think that, you know, God determines before you're born whether you're going to heaven or hell. So it's not that like he knows <clears throat> it's, he has already chosen the elect hmm. before you're born. And so, I mean, oh, how that's predestination, right? Yes. And that's a, that's, that's a double, double, well, predesti double predestination. Yes, double predestination. Yeah. And that's true, right? It's, it's a true thing in the it, Catholic church, a, right? Well, it's, double predestination is a teaching of Calvin. Oh, okay. 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 Yes. Yes. So, you know, <clears throat> as Catholics, we believe we have free will. God offers us his grace and, you know, through the saving work of his son, we can, we can choose to, to, to believe that and, and to live a life of Christ. Whereas in the Presbyterian tradition, at least from what I've read of Calvin and I have all of his writings, it appears that that free will is not there because it's more about God's sovereignty, not God's love. Mm -hmm. So this sovereignty of God basically says that he can do whatever he want with his creation and that he can decide or that he does decide before you're born, whether you're destined for heaven or hell. Is that true yeah. though? Is that predestination. Is predestination a true? This I've is, learned uh, about this, but I, I can't really, is, is it widely believed like by Catholics that predestination is a true thing? Cause God, uh, well, God yes. knows everything, right? He knows. So, God he knows, knows. we're going to choose, but there's a difference between <clears throat> him knowing and him already determining 
So okay. you don't have a choice. That's oh, the okay. Well, then, yeah, then predestination doesn't really make sense. This is from right? uh, one of the early church fathers, <laughs> Fulgence of Rus, who actually was a contemporary of Augustine. But this is how he explains it. He said, God was able, as he willed, to, pre- to predestine some to glory and others to punishment. But those whom he predestined to glory, he predestined to righteousness. Those, however, whom he predestined to punishment, he did not predestine to guilt. Hmm. So huh. you don't, it's not, God, when he predestines the just, gives them the grace that makes them righteous. So he does predestine them and then give them the <clears> grace <throat> and then they accept it and then are righteous. However, those who he predestines to punishment, he doesn't predestine to guilt. So meaning they chose what they eventually receive. And God foreknew that in predestination, but he doesn't cause the will to be guilty. The will is the one that causes it. So is predestination basically- So the double predestination is God also predestines them to be guilty. Mm-hmm. That's what Calvin says. Hmm. So he- So which know, one's right? Calvin's wrong. <laughs> that's Okay, that's what I was- yeah. Okay, but, but in Calvin's teaching of predestination, then- that would kind of make free will invalid, right? There is no free will. There is no free will. Okay. Right. Yeah. So I kind of, and I talked about this during my presentation because, so 50 years after Calvin passed away, the reformed tradition, so his, his like, you know, descendants, the spiritual descendants kind of um, took root in, in the Netherlands. Right. And so they were the reformed um, tradition there. And there was this um, theologian named Jacob Herman and his Latin name was Arminian, Arminius, right? And so he started to realize that, hey, you know, this double predestination thing doesn't make much sense. We need to have like a meeting together to talk about this because there's, we, we have to have free will, right? And so we had these five points to explain, um, you know, like what free will is and that, you know, we can choose to accept God's grace. And so the Calvinists came back to counter refute or to refute every one of those points. And the acronym became TULIP. And so that is kind of like the basic way that we can now describe and explain what predestination is. So the T in TULIP is total depravity. Hmm. And so that basically means that after the fall, our wills are always inclined to evil, no matter what. We're always inclined to evil. So we're just like basically slaves of the devil. We're totally depraved. Okay. And their minions were trying to say that like we have a chance to be good mm. again. He's like, no, total depravity. Your your will is always evil. So mm. there's no free will to be good, to choose good. You can't even choose good anymore. Jeez. Right? This is Calvin, right? Yeah. Calvin's yeah. position. So, yes. okay. So these oh. are his descendants explaining his position through mm. this acronym that countered the Arminian's points. And so the U is um, unconditional election. And so that means that it is God unconditionally chooses who's going to live or go to heaven and who's going to go to hell. So the Arminians were saying it's conditional based on our choices. And the Calvinists were saying, no, it's unconditional. It's not based on us. We have no role at all. Why? Because we're totally depraved. Mm. So only God will choose which ones of us. And he knows before we're born. Right. And then the L is limited atonement. And so Hmm. this part, I think, is the most controversial because that was to counter the Arminian's point of unlimited atonement, that Christ came to save everyone. And so what the Calvinists say is that, no, Christ did not come to save everyone. He only came to save his elect. 
And so mm. it's more of <clears throat> particular salvation versus universal salvation. That's very controversial. I mean, Christ came to save everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. And right. So, That's why yeah. we spread the gospel mm-hmm. to tell everyone about this grace that is offered to him or to offer to us. Right. Yeah. So then the I is irresistible grace. And so irresistible grace means that if you are his elect, that you will go to heaven because you cannot resist this mm-hmm. grace that is offered you. And that again strikes down free will. Exactly. Yeah. This whole thing does. Yeah. And so that was to counter the Arminian's point of resistible grace, that God can offer us his grace and we can choose to say yes or no. And the Calvinist saying, no, you can't resist it. If God calls you, you will choose him. Right. And then the P is perseverance of the saints. And so this means that, so in their view, it's like the saints are the elect And so if you know that you are elected, you will naturally want to persevere because the grace is so irresistible. So you want to be good. All this kind of strikes down the ability of the decision-making of the human being. Correct. Yeah. Which is, that's, that's, yeah, that's strange. That's really strange. And then the world is the dominion of Satan. So that's, it's so, it just seems so, so focused around evil. It is. It is. And that's, that's the harsh part is like, where, where's God's goodness? Where's God's love? You know? And, you know, when we talk about when, when Peter says in first Peter, um, I think it's two, four, where he says that we become partakers of the divine nature. That's not a verse you hear in Protestant circles that like mm-hmm. we are transformed by Christ's grace and we become new creatures. We become divinized so that we can do good things and we can get closer to God and closer to sainthood. Whereas it seems like in this reformed tradition of Calvin, it's our wills are always going to be evil. And the idea of justification from what I understood from my teachings from <clears throat> my professors last year is that like right, Christ's grace covers you, but it doesn't transform you. It's like a shield. It's like you're still bad, but Christ's grace covers you. But so it's like, where's the change? Like where's the relationship and the communion, Mm. you know, with God. And how can you be grateful unless you've really been transformed and able to like be good and be good to others? Hmm. Who would want to be a Calvinist? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's scary stuff. It's scary. Yeah. Now a question that I've always had, and I don't know, this is just me not knowing a lot of theology. Um, Do we have free will in heaven? Yeah. Okay. Why? Now, 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 do we have free will? Is that the ability? Okay, so this is what I'm thinking. We have free will in heaven, but isn't free will supposed to be ch- the choice between good and evil for you yeah. to choose? But there's no evil in heaven. Correct. So where's the I'm, where's the misconnect here? So from what I understand from my classes is that once we get to heaven, our wills are always oriented towards the good. Right. Mm-hmm. So we can't do anything bad because that is like when we have that beatific vision, that, that vision of Christ, there, there is complete absence of evil. It's, there's nothing bad. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing to choose, but goodness. Right. So the good, it doesn't determine meaning force free will to cease to exist. It just, the good is so apparent that you would have not even a thought to, I mean, to choose anything else. It's so the, the your will is still free in that situation. <clears throat> Oh, I see. But the okay. good is so apprehended so perfectly and willed so perfectly at the same time that your free will still exists. It's not annihilated, but it's perfectly fulfilled. Oh, it's a good way. I get it's it. Really okay. It's perfectly yeah. fulfilled. Okay. Yeah. So I was just like, in heaven, there's no evil. So what am, <laughs> what am I, you know, 
I mean, it'd be, yeah, if we really saw evil I didn't, as it is. I didn't understand if, if we, what free will yeah. was then. Like, I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. Well, anyways, what were you going to say? I, I mean, if we weren't clouded by concupiscence and our evil desires and actually apprehended the good, and um, it wouldn't, it still wouldn't determine our will, but we would see evil for what it is, which is just a lesser good that's not oriented to, you know, to the final ends and just be like, why would I ever choose that? You know, so, and that's part of, that's part of, you know, living the Christian life is seeing the good, living the good. And then you get to, you know, the, those who are pure in heart will see God. There's like the continual, you, you get to see more and more of the good and your will just basically says like, why would I ever choose the evil thing? It doesn't destroy it. It's just like perfecting it. And the more you get stuck in evil, the more determined your will ultimately becomes because the sin becomes very <clears throat> repetitive, mundane. Like, I mean, you reduce it ultimately to power or something like that, you know, or, um, or money or any of the other evil pursuits of man for their own sake. You know, money's not necessarily bad, but. Crazy, crazy. Cal- but Cal- Calvin thinks you're totally depraved. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Meaning you're only going to do evil. But Anything we, you do is evil. But we are naturally inclined towards evil, right? Since the fall, because of the fall. Like we're not naturally inclined towards the, well, well that sounds, it's, it's sounds wrong. <laughs> it's a but, struggle. Yeah. And we have to fight with that. So I know what, the way Dr. Hahn explains it is the way we believe as Catholics that is that we are deprived of grace. We deprived ourselves you know, after the fall, whereas the Protestants believe that we are completely depraved. So we're like completely evil mm-hmm. all the time. Whereas we have been, we deprived ourselves of grace in the Catholic tradition. So when Adam and Eve sinned, they deprived themselves of God's love and his fullness and were, you know, evacuated away from the garden. So they were deprived, right? But not with the promise of a savior. And so when Jesus comes, he fills us again with that, with that grace that we were missing, but we still have that struggle, that constant struggle. And and because of Adam and Eve, we lost sanctifying grace, right? Mm-hmm. But we can, can we temporarily receive sanctifying grace, right? We can, right? Baptism, you do mm-hmm. receive Baptism, you do. Yeah. And it just with other, with other sacraments too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we initially lost sanctifying grace, but it can be renewed. I guess, right? And it's even greater than the before the fall. Yeah. Um, Christ's grace is super abundant, as Paul talks about. Yeah. You get baptized, you can actually live out a holy Catholic life, and even unto death, like Christ did on, uh, on the cross. It so, becomes possible. For Calvin, none of that's possible. It's All such of that a negative view. Yeah. As, as the famous Luther quote of, you know, we're all we are is really... Snow covered dung heaps. Yeah. You know what I mean? Dung heaps. We're still a pile of shit, but <laughs> there's some there's some you know grace over the top of it. <laughs> Speaking of uh baptisms, well we were talking about that whole thing of the we baptize you instead of the I baptize you. Do you remember that? Yeah, that no, priest. Crazy, Did you yeah. ever hear about that? Mm-mm. This was in Michigan. <clears throat> some Michigan, di- yeah. No, 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 wait a second. I think it was Buffalo. <laughs> some diocese where there was a young priest who went back and looked at his uh baptismal video like when he was a kid. Uh, and realized that the deacon said, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is an invalid formula, meaning he was never baptized, <laughs> meaning he was not a priest and wasn't technically Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> so he contacted his bishop and every sacrament he administered administer was not valid either because Oops. he was not baptized. Yeah. Uh, so he went to his bishop and he was like, uh, 
I need to send you this video. <laughs> and I'm not a Catholic. <laughs> so he gets baptized and confirmed and receives the Eucharist and, uh, and then becomes a priest all in one day. And then the bishop <laughs> sends out this letter to the diocese like, okay, we messed up basically. <laughs> you know, Father, if you were baptized under Father so-and-so, please contact us. If oh you my goodness. The oh, and then God. he also, it was like, it was like a full-on course on sacramental theology. He released like this huge document. And uh, it's like, yeah, no, we as Catholics, like sacraments aren't just something that anyone can do. It's like, it's, it is, yeah, those are these specific means of grace that Christ has in- instituted and they have a proper matter. They have a proper form. And, uh, but it's just a wild story. And then, and he also wrote in the letter, like, okay, so the, the masses he celebrated were not valid. were not proper masses. You didn't receive the Eucharist, but God if you were res- trying to receive him and believed in that, he would have supply- supplied that grace extra sacramentally. However, yeah. And if you were baptized or married, <laughs> you need to contact us. <laughs> or, so or married. married under him. <laughs> no, wait. Luckily, so how he caught that, that early in his you know, priestly uh, ministry. Did he he get- was only about two years in. So did he do wow. any marriages? I think he did, yeah. A number so of what them. do you do? You redo the entire marriage? You yeah, you have to get a sacramentalized. Oh, yeah. I mean, you don't get all the witnesses again, but or whatever, it's still but legal. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's legal, uh, but it's not sacramental yeah. at that point. That would have been wild. Uh, wait, wait, actually, yeah, wait. Uh, if it was recognized by the church, uh, with the valid minister present, uh, yeah, I guess it wouldn't be. Yeah, so m- married or baptized or confirmed or whatever. So that's actually wild. no, baptized is fine. Mm-hmm. So as long as. Any person, as long as they have the I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they have the proper form and water, then so the baptisms were still valid. But but the masses the, and the confessions were not. So Confirmation even well. though the priest technically wasn't a priest, he can give a valid baptism. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I mean, we can give valid baptisms yeah. in very difficult circumstances. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, have you have you seen Nacho Libre? <laughs> no, I haven't. What? Okay, I so know, that's yeah, 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 there's seen. a scene where uh, Nacho is with his uh, his buddy, who's also his fighting buddy, and he's like, "Wait, you are not baptized?" You know, because Nacho's actually a uh, he's a friar actually, who's left his little <laughs> friary to Jeez. fight as a luchador, and he's like, "We are losing because you are not baptized." <laughs> <laughs> and so he gets like, there's a scene, the other guy's just kind of sitting there, just not paying attention. And he gets a thing of water and he goes up and he's like, I baptize you in the name of the Father. <laughs> so that's not valid. But if the guy was dying and you came up and you're like, I baptize you. What do you have to if have? They wanted, what if, do you have to have? to If that person is dying in the moment, no church within 100 miles, no priest within 100 miles. No. What do you have to have to give that person a proper baptism? It's from what I remember, it's the intention to do it and then you have to have like you said the form and the matter so we need just the water and the Mm. words it's very simple so So even a non-christian could baptize you is the form the water or is that the matter that's the matter matter. the form would be the The word okay and i think the intention behind those words so like even if it was a non-christian they would have to have like the intent to, to say the words that they mean for you or something like that. That was you, a new concept for me too. Do you just say, I baptize, baptize you in yep. the name of Father, Son, Son and Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Can't be, I baptize you in the name of Christ. It can't be, we baptize you. It can't be, I baptize you in the name of the Father and Son. It has to be, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It has to be that formula. 
I'm baptized which is given to us from Christ. Yeah. <clears throat> so that form has to be present, which the priest didn't have. And <clears throat> the deacon thought he was being cute and said, hey, we, we baptize you, you know, our whole community here. But no, it has to be the single actor, I. Why um, is that, though? Why is it I and not we? Because that's what be- guarantees the sacramental graces. Okay. It's like the form and the matter are the guarantors of Christ giving the graces that the sacraments signify. So you, so we said the form was the words, right? So yeah, technically, it's just it's crazy to think just one word can yeah, make, like if a yeah. priest says takes the bread and wine and says this is his body that is given up for you, it's invalid. It's not a proper mass because you have to say this is my body. That's the specific formula because that. the priest is taking the person mm-hmm. of Christ. Yeah, and he's if he's like, well, I don't really, it's not really bread, but it's I don't know, it's some I don't know, whatever whatever it is, it's a pretzel, but uh, <laughs> or something. This will be with you know the matter. It's like no, the matter has to be bread and wine. Can't be uh, bread and water, pretzels and beer, and so. What was, which is crazy? The sacraments, oh, <clears throat> they're awesome. What was like in the Air Force? Just like. Was there, you know, being a Catholic, um, was there any type of, like, as you're going around in your day-to-day, was there any kind of just, not, like, not discrimination, obviously, but was there any type of, like, stereotypes with Catholicism, like, in the Air Force? Just like, well, let's put it to religious people in general. Was there any type of... I don't know. I guess probably not, but I'm just trying to think. Um, yeah. Was there any type of just kind of these people are, well, these people. I shouldn't say these people, but people that are religious, you know, is there any was there any type of stereotypes or anything? Um, you know, I didn't personally experience that, you know. Um, but so when we have chaplains, you know, even though each chaplain comes from their own denomination or their own religion, you know, and a lot of times you would prefer to have a chaplain of your own denomination. They can really serve, you know, everyone. And what I liked about being a Catholic was that on Ash Wednesday, I could go get my ashes in my uniform. And so I get to display my faith on my forehead (laughs) all day long. That's awesome. The best part, you know, because, you know, when you're in uniform, it's you're in uniform and you are a service member and we all look alike for the same reason with the same uniform, you know, Mm. but I get to express myself on Ash Wednesday. That's great. Be a witness. With the ashes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it was, it, it, it was kind of hard, um, when, you just have space for like one, one religious space. So you have like the chapel, you know? And so it's like, it's not, it's not a Catholic chapel. It's just a chapel for every service and you have your times and then you get out and the next one comes in, Mm. you know? And so when we'd have like our Catholic masses, you know, in Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina, the Protestant mat or the Protestant service was right after us. So there's like no lingering. It's like, you got to get everything and get it out. So the next (laughs) one can come in. You know, and so then it's like that for all all different faiths. It's like, so you don't, that space isn't yours, you know? So I kind of did miss that. While it was like a great thing to be able to have that space for all faiths to be able to to practice what I do like being um, like in 
in a parish being here is that like when I go into church, it stays Catholic when I leave. It has, yeah, yeah. you know, it's it's a place of of my worship, you know, and I can come back anytime and and know that like my faith is being represented here. So, you know, that's one of the good things I like about being here is 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 having that continuity in, in the chapel. So it's not like, you know, just set up Catholic stuff and leave, you know, it's, you know, we can worship God. This is a place of worshiping God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And it's Catholic and there's a tabernacle yes. and there's an altar. <laughs> we have priests and it's, it's ours. Nice. Exactly. It's a great thing about being Catholic. We like making like physical, you know, freaking cathedrals and, you know, like yeah. real physical symbols of like, this is the faith and here's a crucifix. And, you know, that's, you know, it's it's not all abstract and whatever. Mm-hmm. We make bomb churches, really. really yeah, cool we churches. do. Yeah. So everywhere from not CTK, but <laughs> well, for another need time. Some work. It needs some work. Uh, maybe, so maybe one day, a grand cathedral of Franciscan. Yeah, you know, I <laughs> up uh, on our base. Hopefully, I mean, yeah, hopefully. Um, so everywhere from Germany to mm-hmm. Seoul or south of Seoul, South Korea to Africa. Mm-hmm. You've just been all over the place. Yes. I haven't <clears throat> been to blessing. South America <laughs> or Australia, but yeah, I'm so grateful for all the places I've traveled. And, you know, like Western Europe is very different from Africa, which is very different from Korea. So completely different cultures of people that I got to interact with and 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 spend time with. And it was, yeah, it was a really great journey for me being in the Air Force and doing so many different things. That's just so cool. What a blessing to have people like you to serve our country. Yeah. And we know we really appreciate it. Um, and, you know, you guys are what keep preserve our freedoms. And it's so true. And, you know, everybody, whether you're actually like in combat or whatever, you're not in combat, you're doing intelligence or whatever. Like those people preserve our freedom. And it's such it's such an American value. Like mm-hmm. we pride ourselves off of being a free country doing. You know being free to do what you want. And that's something that a lot of the world doesn't have. And for the military to take care of us and to give us assurance that our country is in a, in a is in a good spot that you know we do try to take care of our veterans and we do try to be the best people that we can and witnesses to them. It's just like the whole military in general like it's such a blessing that we have, you know, to this country. And it's good that I think it's good that every country should have their own um, model of defense. And uh, it's just really cool. And especially on when is Veterans Day exactly? Is it the it's week? Today. It's yeah, today. It's November okay. 11th. <clears throat> That's yeah. what I thought. Okay. Wow. Thanks. Yeah. Shout out to all our veterans, man. We, we wouldn't have this. We wouldn't have the Kel and Alex show for the number of veterans. Not many of it. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, yeah, tons of sacrifices and civilians just can't. It's just, it's almost impossible to understand, but I think that's one of the reasons why we need that culture of appreciation, especially because mm-hmm. of our ignorance of the sacrifices that the military people have. Yeah. Um, that culture of like, yeah, let's actually, you know, try and be understanding and, and you know, help them back into civilian life and civilian world and, and show that appreciation, like, legitimately, like. Just simple uh, yeah. acts of kindness each day. I just think yeah. it's, you went from Pentagon to Franciscan, <laughs> you, you know, within like within a year in 2019. So, so much experience. I mean, it's like, are yeah. you, are, was it a good decision? Are you glad to be in 
Steuben Mill Franciscan, the whole thing. Oh yeah. Like I have, I have not looked back. Like this is exactly where God wants me and everyone that I've met, including you guys and all my professors and, and, and everyone at school. Um, it's just been such a blessing and, you know, I have no idea where, where God wants me next, but life is a continuous adventure, you mm-hmm. know? And so I've been single this whole time. So I haven't had another person to, you know, think about or to mm. compromise with. So, you know, if you're single out there, appreciate your single time <laughs> because, you know, you get to just make decisions for yourself and grow and understand yourself. And that will make you a much better marriage partner if you take that time and appreciate it. Yeah. There you have it. Life's an adventure. Yes. God's writing the script. Yes. Yeah. He's written a really cool one so far with you, Raven. Oh, thanks. Hopeful. Yeah. Franciscan, this little tiny portion of our uh, our lives and then moving on to the next stuff. Who knows what will happen? But uh, who knows? The world is huge. <laughs> yep. And Steubenville, our little military uh, base up little here. Little military yeah. base. <laughs> a little small part of it. And, uh, you know, a really big part of it. The Kellen and the Alex show. <laughs> Rava, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank this you. Was really wonderful. Thank you so much so. for having me. It was so much fun. Yes. We'll be back tomorrow with, uh, talking about big families, actually, with yes, uh, Bridget and Jocelyn. We're going to have the oldest. The oldest sibling podcast. You're, oldest, you're going to be included. But you're not I, the oldest I'm sibling. I'm second to youngest. So He's second youngest. I have four I'm oldest sisters. of 11. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then That's Jocelyn's oldest of seven? Seven. 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 Bridget's oldest of eight. Dang. And you are a little baby I'm seconds. a little baby second. second. <laughs> Isabella's the youngest. She's in San Diego right now. Yeah, she is. She's in yeah. Escondido. Setting, That's so. dope. Yeah. That's going to wrap it up for us. Thank you guys Thank so much you. for listening. Peace out. If there's a Christian religion and it's Catholicism or nothing. What politics actually is, art of people living together, orienting one another towards virtue. And the person was like, dude, flirting is the abortion of love. This is the most worthy, most exciting, most adventurous. Drop and, a nuke uh, on the Franciscan bubble. The Kellen and Alex Show. God could have stopped it. If he Permissive wanted. will. That's right. <laughs> I don't know why God would allow something like that to go through. But then again, God allows God thousands allows you of to people go to go on and on. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> Truth, okay. <laughs>